Welcome to the latest episode of At The Flicks. Yes, the three old-timers are back with our eclectic mix of news, reviews and rambling discussions on everything movie-related. It's showtime! Hi, I'm Jeff, and those that know me know my main cinema interests are political and horror movies. With the British political party conferences now out of the way for another year, thank goodness I hear you say, I thought I would do some digging to find out what they've been watching in their spare time. Now, lads, my sources tell me the most watched film at the Labour Party conference was, wait for this, Schindler's List. Who'd have thought it? <laughs> Meanwhile, over at Tory HQ, they have had the whole series so far of Game of Thrones on strict rotation. I guess by now they must be struggling to tell fantasy from reality. Oh, hang on. <laughs> Hi, my name is Graham, and my main cinema interests are sci-fi and comic book movies. My sources tell me the Green Party have been watching Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. And of course the SNP have been watching Braveheart, <laughs> as they do every year. Bloody hell, I'm Mel Gibson in my introduction. What's happening to me? <laughs> this guy's haunting me. Nice oh. one. <laughs> Okay, and the Presbyterian Taliban, sorry, I mean the DUP, have been watching The Witchfinder General. <laughs> Hi, my name is Neil, and I wish I could edit Jeff live. I've told you before, Neil, keep your hands off my edit. And we start on geez, We start on a high, as the great news this month is the listeners have spoken. They agree with me. In our survey on a great sports debate, they agree with me in a ratio of three to one that my argument was the correct one. All I have to say to you is, Jeff, 3-1, we only win 3-1. Calm down, Neil, calm down and stop <laughs> jumping around like <laughs> Theresa May's demented dance partners. The voters, like in another vote I could mention, were misinformed. This result shows the people have had enough of experts and want individuals like Michael Gove, or Neil, his lookalikes, <laughs> to win. You cheeky so <laughs> Jeff, that is so below the belt. You're hitting Neil in the ankle. Enough. The sports movie debate was last time. This month, we have another show packed with goodies. Before that, though, here are some of our latest stats. Again, another excellent month, and we have increased our downloads. Most popular this month by a large margin was show number eight for August, followed closely by our short on the silent era horror and our first sci-fi short on superhero flops. Other shorts on the proposed Cheltenham Film Festival and the horror movie Hereditary are also showing strong performance this month. The Hereditary short is doing amazingly well, Jeff, with still four or five downloads per day after almost nine weeks. That's really great stuff with the stats that we've currently got. But I hear we've got some feedback as well about our show notes. Oh, yeah. We got some feedback from one of our listeners in Australia who said we mention an awful lot of movies in each show and he found the show notes really really useful if you hear a movie and you can't remember which one it is we list all of the movies we've mentioned each month in the show notes and we do link over to imdb don't we on those on yeah mostly yeah thanks graham and now back to the sports movies for some listener comments are we ever going to hear the end of this 
Nope, it's not much that shuts Jeff up, so I'm going to make the most of it. Our friend Phil makes a good point when he says, it feels to me like you're arguing that good sports movies are character studies because ultimately that's what makes them interesting. Without the sport in Raging Bull or Field of Dreams or some other examples you discussed, it'd be difficult to frame that character. Philippa also made some good points. Unfortunately, they were made shouting at Jeff while listening in her car and not recorded. You got <laughs> off lightly there, Jeff. Dex view, I think Neil won it in extra time. The final point he made about all sports involving characters was spot on, and that's why our favourite sports stars are the ones with backstory and personality. Thanks, Dex. Paul says, I award it to Neil, not based on his presentation, but on you fouling. Oh, and by the way, Paul, thanks for your hysterical review of The Happy Time Murders. A shame we can't read much of it out. I could go on all night reading these out. You certainly go on, Neil. If only I could borrow Boris's suicide jacket for you. It looks cold outside. And it will certainly make sure you stay oh, well, warm. Oh, OK, and the adult steps back into the room. Gentlemen, corners, please. <laughs> and while you're there, Jeff, why not give us the answer to last month's quiz? Will do, Graham. It's what most listeners are here for. Oh, and <laughs> yeah, thanks to Sarah and world. all... <laughs> oh, and thanks to Sarah and all the others who sided with me in the sports debate. <sighs> they want to remain nameless while Neil is still wearing that jacket. <laughs> so, to the quiz and the voice clips. Here they are again for you with the answers. Clip number one. You're going to need a bigger boat. Jaws, Roy Scheider. Clip number two. I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Casablanca, Humphrey Bogart. And finally, clip number three. Greetings and salutations. Heathers. Christian Slater. Well done to all our winners. Another quiz coming at the end of the show. It's the only thing that keeps Neil going. Right. Yeah. Enough of this messing about, <laughs> as we have a packed show and we need to get things moving. This month, instead of a feature, just look how controversial they were last month, we have some very interesting interviews for you. We go backwards as we talk to local author and former projectionist Adam Baker about his memories and the history of the Cheltenham Odeon. Then we'll introduce you to our new contributor, Lucy, who this month will be giving her view on an aspect of modern horror cinema. Jeff, this is a takeover, if I'm not mistaken. First the horror pod shorts, and now persuading knowledgeable people like Lucy to join us on this horror quest. After that, if Neil's not too scared, we will present the latest movie news, and I am assured I will be talking about a different actor than usual. And then... To the reviews, which this month are an odd mix, being The Happy Time Murders, The Miseducation of Cameron Post and Lucky. Except we weren't too lucky <sighs> with Lucky. A good job there was a fortune cookie handy. <laughs> That's right. Due to circumstances beyond our control, <laughs> we changed our final review film this month to Crazy Rich Asians. Can, can I just add there... Beyond our control. Oh, we'll come back right, and talk. It? No, it isn't, Neil. And I've got to side with Neil on this one. Anyway, back to you, Graham. Just ganging up on me now. After that, we look ahead to new films with manager Steve Wright from our local cine world. Let me tell you, there are some exciting films coming, as Steve will explain. Finally, and I do mean finally, there is Jeff's quiz. Wow, what a lineup! Let's get started with our first interview.
I don't need to say I wasn't at this interview, standard really. One day someone listening will say they just want an interview from me. The sports fan are on my side on this. Anyway, back to the interview. Here, local writer Adam Baker, his new book is Raven Sword, part two of the Path of the Samurai books, and well worth a read. He will be talking about his thoughts on the Cheltenham Odeon. Adam provides some fascinating anecdotes into that now long-gone cinema. This is the first of what we hope to be a series of conversations with Adam about various aspects of cinema. Please note this is an extract from part of the wider conversation about a special project which we'll talk about in future episodes. As such... There is no introduction, just Jeff, as usual, rambling on before Adam is allowed to speak. <laughs> I'd like just to cover what we spoke at the beginning about the history of the Odeon. Yeah, because it goes back, what was it, a 1930s building? Yeah, it was part of a huge wave of cinema building that came out after the introduction of sound. Yeah. Rather like, you know, Avatar, Avatar was going to bring in 3D, sound brought in an enormous amount of investment in cinema building. Okay. And towns like Cheltenham didn't have just one, but they had many. I guess there were so many simply because very few people had cars, just the same reason, you know, they used their corner pub rather than go to some city centre. And there was nothing else. There was the radio, but it was a completely different experience. Yeah. And the Odeon was the biggest of the bunch because it could do live shows. It was a single auditorium at that stage and it had about seating capacity of about 2,000. And they would uh, had a temporary screen and they'd show the film of the day. Uh, the first one they showed was Rome Express, starring Conrad Veidt. Who, funnily enough, we're just talking about was in um, the Sonambulist in Doctor Cabinet Doctor Caligari. All right. He went off to to Hollywood. He was certainly against Hitler. Mm-hmm. He was the head Nazi in Casablanca, mm-hmm. and he died of a heart attack shortly after. He's just forty three years old. Right. I think Rome Express is one of those lost films. The point about the Odeon is opposed to where the other cinemas in Cheltenham, and this would have been mirrored in towns all over the place is it's the one that did live shows, and they were having... At the time, of course, it would be radio stars, it would be people like Tommy Handley and maybe later on the Goons would come and do their shows there, and they'd fold up the silver screen and put it away for that kind of performance. And later on, they had a lot of rock bands. The Beatles were there, weren't they? Yeah. When I was taken on as projectionist, I, my mentor was um, a chap called, just known as Chiefy. Oh, Chief, yeah. Yeah, and he'd been there for donkey's years. Yeah. And he had been doing the lighting for the pot. The, he did the lighting for the Beatles. I mean, he hated rock music, but yeah. he sort of flashed the, the lights for him. He did the, the Stones as well. Pink Flo- early Pink Floyd, Sid Barrett era, brought their light show. Mm. And he wor- worked all the lights from the gantry. He didn't have much to say about them, really. Apart from the Stones, he yelled at Mick Jagger because he got caught short and pissed in the wings instead of using the loop. <laughs> Bellowed out Sorry, you're Mick Jagger. That you have to do that. That's in his contract. Oh, yeah. Mick was there then as well, wasn't he? Is he for the people? Uh, no, he was. He joined a bit later. Right. And he had plenty of anecdotes. He met Bowie um, at one of his other cinemas. Yeah. And again, it was a very early Bowie tour, and um, apparently he was very, very pleasant. They chatted in the dressing room. He he had some album called Spiders from Mars. He was talking about. He was excited about that coming out. But they chugged on with the live shows right up until the 1970s, very early 1970s. Uh, last one was Olivia Newton-John, apparently, early okay. 70s. And that's the point at which they walled off the stage and subdivided down into three screens. But that is something that's worth m- mentioning. When they, f- they had that final sort of pop concert, Olivia Newton-John, they walled off the front of the stage. But the entire staging area was left derelict behind it. 
that was the weird thing about working in the Odeon was was all the spaces that were walled off. And uh, if you just if you had the keys as I did, open this door might mark private next to one of the screens. You could just walk out onto this derelict stage, which still had all the lighting gear, all the weights, all the scenery bars. There were even microphones propped in the corner, ready for you know the next singer to come along. Yeah. And the whole thing sort of draped in cobwebs and dust. And if you went downstairs, the Warren of dressing rooms was still there, with these dusty armchairs in front of the classic dressing room mirror, surrounded with light bulbs. And so when were that? About what, early 70s? It's early 70s. I mean, anyone talks about the blockbuster era, they start talking about Jaws, which would be about 75. 75. That, again, that's mm. another one. See, that opened in May 75 in America, mm. and we had it all through that summer in mm. every newspaper. This is now the number one film ever. Yeah, it's great. And it opened in three cinemas in London at Christmas on Boxing Day again, and we got it at the end of January, mm. just before after. Just mm. ridiculous thing in that. But yeah, you're right. People always say that's the beginning of the blockbuster era, but I think from the way the Odin's refurbished, I took it that it was, it was already starting, in that the development of cinema tends to work in opposition to the development of TV. And TV in the States had gone colour in the 60s, and when colour in the UK, BBC was broadcasting in 1970. Yeah. So you had films were upping the ante. You get a lot more car chase movies and big explosions and a lot more capital investment in spectacle. So I think that the whole sort of blockbuster dynamic was already baking in. It was just movies were making more money than doing the live shows, so they went over to it permanently. For, certainly for a time back then, I mean, you had... Obviously, you had The Godfather, The Exorcist, mm-hmm. The Tower and Inferno to a certain extent. Yeah, nobody used the summer. The summer was a wasteland, mm-hmm. you know. And you're right, the, multi- the birth of the multiplex cinema, they were shoving cinemas into shopping areas in the mm-hmm. States. Uh, and, and these things just really took off. But we didn't know what to do with it in this country. That's why these were big summer hits. Mm-hmm. We just didn't get them. The first three blockbusters of summer hits were Jaws, that owned in January. Star Wars, February. Greece, September. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and these were big summer hits in the States. And after that, it started to change. But even as late as 88, Who Framed Roger Rabbit opened. Opened in the States in the summer and opened with us for Christmas. Mm. And that was the pattern they seemed to do. And that was pretty much the end of it. The back end of the 80s, they started to change. Mm-hmm. But it was really frustrating. We were getting some summer hits by that time. But the things like, you know, if you name a lot of these films... That's what Roger Rabbit, Back to the Future, pretty much anything to do with Spielberg. E.T. is a classic example. And E.T. almost killed them because the illegal video was flying around mm. everywhere for months before mm. that. But they didn't learn their lesson from that either. Ghostbusters, Gremlins, mm-hmm. all of those were summer films that we got at Christmas. Yeah, so, well, the development of the multiplex kind of goes hands in, hand in hand with the development of marketing as a discipline, I mean, one of the things that always struck me was the old Star Trek TV show got cancelled because it had low ratings. Yeah. Because advertisers hadn't yet understood that raw ratings, you know, you have to have demographics. Having 5 million broke 90-year-olds isn't as good as having 3 million youngsters with money in their pockets watching mm. a show. And um, you have that same sophistication gradually creeping in with the cinema kind of marketing as well. And that's why the... Multiplex comes in and it's dividing up and serving different demographics instead of showing one film in a big auditorium and expecting everybody to see it. 
but you had a huge blip. So, so you, you're quite right. We had the early 70s stuff up to about 78, 79. It was mm. brilliant. But from 79 to 84, the tail off in this country was phenomenal. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was... Um, certainly when I joined in the 90s, there was the, the sense of relief that cinema was picking up again. Oh, yeah. yeah. The Odeon was doing... Um, in the 80s, it was... They were trying to rent videos. VHS was really killing them. They were doing a lot of fairly sort of smutty films, you know, when was trying to go for peep show route just to get anybody to... Again, the 70s, the Confessions film. Yeah. That sort of kept that going. We did a, a thing on the future of the cinema... And we, we tracked back into the past and this whole video thing. Mm-hmm. And video had a... Well, two things happened. In my opinion, two things happened. One was they got away with the double bills. That mm-hmm. all went. Yeah. And it was single films then. And you went in and saw what you wanted. And as you like, they promoted the hell out of it. And all of that was going on. But video actually worked the opposite way. So people were going out and renting Rocky or The Karate Kid, thinking, I really enjoyed this. Well, the new one's on in the cinema. I've got to go see that first. Mm. And, and it, that era of sequels, at that video time, was really important to get mm-hmm. people back. So through the 80s, so it was a three-screener. So I came to Cheltenham in 89, mm-hmm. by which time it was a five-screener then, so they split it down, put, put it to five. Yeah, screen four, which was the tiny screen they used to show art house movies, that used to be a cupboard. Um, <laughs> Things had got so bad that that was actually being used by a furniture shop across the road to store inventory, and they were taking money, renting out rooms in the cinema as a yeah. storage. Would, things had got that bad. But that would have been a couple of years just before you moved to town. And then they find, finally they subdivided down to seven. That would have been about the mid-90s, wasn't it? Maybe around about then? Because Men in yeah, Black was the I big was for that. Yeah, because yeah. Nick did a big promo for that. Mm-hmm. And had two, three films on that invited audience were in, so you could go see one or the other. I think mm. I I went to see Men in Black, but yeah, it was it was great. It was and and you're quite right. It was a sense of family. I mean, when I did the interview with Phil, I said, you know, my start was there were two cinemas in my life that really impacted me. Both had that sense of family. Mm. One was the White Palace Cinema in Pontypridd, where I started, and, and Mrs. Gray there who was the, the manageress, had been there since the 20s. Mm-hmm. This is the 70s. Uh, and she knew that thing inside out, and she was brilliant, and it was a good staff. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the greatest of cinemas, but the staff were great, and I would always go back there whenever I could. Mm-hmm. And the Cheltenham Odeon had that same sense as well. you know. Yeah, well, I, I saw Star Wars there as a kid. I mean, it had been there so long, you know, it, was, it was just a fixture in the town. It was one of those things you thought would be there forever. Yeah. You know, some towns have a cathedral, we had the Odeon. But at the same time, whilst I was working there, I kept hearing about planning applications to build a big multiplex in a retail development in the Lower High Street. And again, it's one of those things you put from your mind, you know, this, this is never going to happen. You look around at the Odeon that's been there forever, as far as you're concerned. This can never close, surely. It's always going to be here. But it did get built, and the Odeon was forced to close. It could have kept going. I, th- I think it could have, mm. to be honest. I think it had... It had a strong audience. It, yeah. it, it would have been interesting when Cineworld introduced the card scheme. Mm. Well, what they would have done is, and they, the um, Odeon uh, had done it in other towns as well, is they followed the indie model. You know, in a lot of towns these days, you have a multiplex which is charging you like 15 quid for a ticket or something, and then popcorn. Whereas somebody, for the love, will, will open an independent cinema and, and families can go and see the same films for about 
you know, three or four pounds can buy mm. the same luxury. Yeah. And the Odeon could have done that. They could have charged much less for tickets, just opened in the evenings, cut staff to a skeleton. But uh, they decided not to do that, and we got the word came down it was closing, and nobody could really believe it. But um, They owned land as well, didn't they, Odeon? Yeah, the, the whole point was it carried no debt. It would just, you know, it was just a, a cinema that sat there pulling in a decent profit. Was that band that couldn't even be here the day it was closed? It was actually in the States. Do you miss the Odeon? Yeah, I do, hugely. It was a, a tremendous sense of um, family and community, but in the end, it, it just comes down to money. That's that's the only thing that sort of matters in the end. Yeah, it's very sad. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of great people there that I got to know. Yourself, Helen, Nick, Alan, you know, all these people have just joined us. But it's been a real pleasure talking Thank to you, you on this. <laughs> History of the Odeon. Thank you for that, Adam. Back to you, Neil. It was indeed a great cinema. Thank you, Adam, for your thoughts on this, and we look forward to speaking to you again very shortly. And now, finally, something I was part of. Every month we'll be talking to Lucy, who is both much younger and more knowledgeable than us. Lucy will be talking about aspects of modern cinema in a feature called Lucy's State of the Movies. We start with looking at horror films over the last 25 years. Hang on, you guys get Adam and I get to talk horror. Jeff, this is your doing. Over to you, Graham. Welcome to our latest contributor to the show. Lucy is going to be joining us each month to give us her views on all things movies in a section called Lucy's State of the Movies. Lucy, a very warm welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Hi, Lucy. I understand your theme is going to be recent horror movies, something I will be honest (laughs) and I say I know nothing about or want to. (laughs) Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's not a genre for everybody. I, I don't blame you one bit. <laughs> no, not for people yeah. that leave the light on if they accidentally watch them, I'll tell you that now. <laughs> um, oh, Lucy, welcome welcome to the show. It's really great to have you. That's why I'll be asking the questions and not Neil. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. <laughs> so, as we said, the theme we've chosen for this session is the state of horror movies over the last 25 years. And I can tell you now... Neil and Graham haven't seen any of the films that we're going to discuss. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so, before we go into this in a little more detail, I'll throw some questions at you. What is it about horror films that appeals to you? Yeah, so it's a funny thing, actually, because you can kind of blame my mum for my introduction into the horror genre, because she was a big horror fan growing up. Like, she loved all the classics. So, as soon as I was old enough to watch them, I basically watched them with her. Um, and my very first horror film was actually Saw, which I will be discussing with you later because it was preferable to the X-Factor final on the, the, the previous channel. So I said, oh, can we just switch over and watch Saw? And she went, sure. So, <laughs> so that's kind of my introduction. But for me, I think that just they're such an interesting genre because, you know, they generate such a big response from audience members. Absolutely. In the sense that they're such an adrenaline rush. Like, for me, I, I hate roller coasters and I hate the idea of, like, say, skydiving or anything that would get my heart going. But I love horror films and I feel like that's kind of a rush for me. And I love watching them. I love getting scared. So um, I appreciate it's not for everybody, but that's kind of where my love comes from. It's just it's my way of seeing these dark stories and seeing the darker side of the human condition and just losing myself in this horrible world. I actually really enjoy that. So, yeah, I've been watching them for several years now, um, and I, I love them just, just as much as I did when I first started. So, And, and it's, a, I mean, personally speaking, I find them a release so that when you do watch them, you know, yep. you're in a safe environment watching these films. Mm-hmm. Although I'd love to see Neil watching Saw. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I would pay to watch that. So uh, you, you took the no, words you right out of no, my mouth. Wait a minute. <laughs> this isn't about me. Yeah, I'll tell you what, you wouldn't be sitting in any of my chairs watching it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but is Saw really a horror or is it just... No, it is horror. It's just horrible. It's just a poor film. It's just a poor film with lots of blood and gore, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Uh, well, it, it, it is, and I will actually be discussing that with you guys later in more depth, but it kind of falls under the torture porn genre, which is a really yes. weird kind yeah. of title. Yeah. But I will explain that to you later on. But yeah, it's actually one of my favourites. When, and yeah, I just I love mainly the antagonist, but like I say, more on that later. <laughs> yeah, okay, we'll come to that one. So, other than mm-hmm. Saw, what other yeah. films in the last twenty five years stand out for you? So, I've written my top five for you, so I can go through that. My first one is Paranormal Activity, actually, because I felt that that was really groundbreaking for the found footage like genre. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you've probably seen the found footage is so overdone these days and people just use it as an excuse to just grab a camera and film things it's not always great but i feel like paranormal activity with their low budget did such a good job sequels not so much like i feel like when horror becomes franchised it kind of like lessens in quality as we go on (laughs) but the the first paranormal activity you know it's very much a case of a couple one of them gets possessed and then we just sort of follow their story and, and how it just kind of rapidly goes downhill and there's a lot of realism to it as well. And I really enjoy that. I don't yeah. know, have, have you seen it? I mean... Yeah, yeah, no, no, I, I was about to say yeah. that one of the things, and I certainly agree with the sequels, so to me, I, I've just watched The Nun this week and there's this whole thing of that you've got this film and mm-hmm. they're now trying to mythologi- mythologise it. And that's very much the same with Paranormal Activity. After one... There was yeah. this whole nonsense of, well, we've got to create this bigger universe for it. No, you haven't. Mm-hmm. The thing that really struck me with Paranormal Activity was this whole thing of when you're asleep, you don't really know what's going on in your house. Mm-hmm. That The little scenes, like, you know, she's sleeping, the bedclothes are being pulled back by something. And, yeah. And, uh, I, I, no, I, I think it's a, a tremendous film. Graham's pulling yeah. faces here. I don't think he'll be, this won't be on his list. <laughs> Even describing it, I'm getting a bit twitchy. Yeah. No, it's, it is, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. No, 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 you carry on, Lucy. This is, I'm, I'm having a whale of a time here. What's, what's the next one? <laughs> so next one is um, Danny Boyle's 28 Days Later. Um, I feel like it, it's kind of, you know, people debate whether or not it is a horror film, but I think it is. You know, it's very much yeah. a zombie film, yes, like classic apocalyptic yeah. zombie film. And I think for me the most stunning thing was seeing London, like, completely abandoned. Yes. And the amount of effort it took for them to actually make that a reality, having Killian Murphy walking through the streets and there's just nothing there, it's just so haunting for me. Even though the zombies themselves are very impressive, I just found that incredibly disturbing from wider society point of view. Like, if we look at sort of realistic horror, then seeing your capital city abandoned like that would terrify anybody. Yeah. And I just feel like he did such a good job of creating that universe for us. And sort of once human nature, you know, human scientists and stuff have messed up, there's no going back from that. And that's the kind of hysteria that we have in horror films quite a lot is that we've created this pandemic that we then can't eradicate. It's just there. Yeah. And I feel like it's it's kind of it's such a common trope, you know, you get infected and then what? <laughs> and I feel like 28 Days Later did such a good job of that. 
Uh, absolutely, and it borrowed. And, mm. and Graham, this is I've, main... seen, I've seen Twenty Eight Days. You, actually. You've seen it. Oh, great! I've, I've actually great. seen it, but for looking at it from more of a sci-fi fan, because it's a John, it's John Wyndham's it's Day John of the Triffids. It's John Wyndham's Day of the Triffids, exactly. Yeah. And uh, and like you said, I, I just because having worked in London for many years, and I used to walk across London Bridge every day to watch him walk across London Bridge with nobody. It was like, mm-hmm. oh my god. What's exactly, going to happen? Yeah. And, and it just built up. And I did think that that was very well done, this sort of isolation and he's the last man standing. I thought that was really, really good. And then when he finds his mates and the others, you know, I, I thought it was very well done. But as you said, Jeff, it's it's just John Wyndham. It, it's the Day of the Triffids mm. in, in, in many ways. Yeah. Have you read Day of the Triffids, Lucy? Yes, oh, I love Day of the Triffids. And it's interesting, again, that we've got 28 Days Later, but Walking Dead also starts from that same point. You know, come, he comes to in the hospital. You haven't mm-hmm. got a clue what's going on in the world. And, yeah. and you see everything through his, his eyes, that, that sort of, you know, Triffid starting point. But, yeah, no. It's, exactly, yeah. 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 Great film, great Danny Boyle film, mm. who will be mm. missed on Bond. Yes, I'm so sad about that. He's my favourite director, actually. So when I heard that he was going to do Bond, I was so excited. And now my heart has just dropped, you know, but... Never mind. <laughs> it's a lack of a script, isn't it? His no, no. Problem. Well, he, he had people in doing the script, but now they've handed it back to those two ah. hacks that have been doing the last few. Right. All right, hey, next yeah. one, Lucy. I'm getting into this now. <laughs> nice. So next one, it's the one that some people may not have seen. It is quite a, like a well-known one, but it's The Cabin in the Woods. I don't know if you've love seen it. that. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, so again, that's incredibly, for me, it's very groundbreaking. You know, it kind of, it takes the tropes that we love and hate and kind of spins them on their heads a little bit. Yeah. And it really, a lot like Scream, like Scream was nearly on this list, you know, yeah. um, almost. I mean, it's quite an old film now, actually, because it was 96. And, and thank you for Six. saying for, that, yeah. For, yeah. for, for <laughs> me, that's old, you see. I, I was looking at more like modern films yeah. with your question. But Cabin in the Woods is, you know, it's such a satire of, of like, you know, being in a remote cabin in the woods and you know kind of with these you know typical people you've got like the jock you've got the nerdy one you've got all these people that you know yeah like you know which one's going to die first and then it just turns itself on its head and i don't want to give away too many spoilers but it's just absolutely fantastic no you can you that. can because these yeah. two are never yeah. ever going to watch people might listen to this no, though of course yeah. oh yeah yeah, yeah. Sure. Sounds, well, we, sounds, spoiler alert sounds like the breakfast yeah. the breakfast club with horror um, yeah, it's um, it's yeah. basically teen horror, but not terrible. That's yeah. what I loved about it. <laughs> it I was going to say it has the most bizarre opening because it opens in an office environment. You know, you got yeah. computer, you got almost like an IT setup, and these people are talking. They're at the coffee machine. That can be scary. Well, yeah, yeah. No, we've been <laughs> there. Oh, we've yeah, seen them. Coffee machines are very scary. Yeah, and. Um, <laughs> And then it sort of cuts from that to this other story, these people going to this cabin in the woods, and you're thinking... Mm-hmm. And it keeps cutting back between the two, and you're thinking, what on yeah. earth is going on? And it mm-hmm. all ultimately makes sense. It's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And that final so scene... Because did you... I had to read up on this. I didn't know who the others were, you know, at the very end of the film. Did no, I admit, I admit that was the film's downfall, that I did have to read up on it, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. But... You know, once I understood what was going on, it made sense, but I kind of wish that it had been a bit clearer. That sequence when they go down into the, mm-hmm. well, into the heart of it and you see all the horror creatures. And yeah. And you're thinking, oh. this is just amazing. The design of those creatures, though, like, just, like, in terms of special effects, is absolutely fantastic, you know, yeah. like, just in terms of, like, visceral, like, monster horror, like, so good. 
Yeah, I yeah, really love that. Talking to you about yeah. it, just put it on my Halloween to watch list this year. Um, yeah, I've got nice. to see it again. It's great. Lance, are you up for Absolutely. that? Absolutely. Yeah, sure. Okay, yeah, fine. It's, it's definitely on my Halloween not to watch list. Yeah, yeah. whatever. whatever. Yes. <laughs> Next one, Lucy. For the he- one, heathens. Uh, sorry, I'm going to talk about Saw a lot. I'm really sorry. No, um, no, so you my, carry on. My, my my next one is Saw because, but the first one only because I feel like again the sequels, you know, they just go too far and ridiculous and far fetched. I'm sure you agree. But for me, the first one, the first time I saw it, I just found it such an interesting study on one man's sort of vengeance against the people that had hurt him through these traps against, okay, well, I'm not going to hurt you, but if you want to get out, you need to hurt yourself kind of mentality. Yeah. And I just thought that it's just such a a good motivation for an antagonist. You know, it's like you're not doing the hurting, but you're putting people in these awful situations, almost reflective of the stuff that he'd been through as well. And I just feel like, you know, you, you wake up chained in a bathroom and you don't know what the hell's going on. There's like a seemingly dead body in front of you and you just think, oh, my God, like, what is going on? Like, it's insane. Like, it's just such a good opening and a good ending as well. I love the way it ends. I, I think the and way it ends is really good. a lot of people really hate good. it, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm not... I, I must admit, I'm not a fan of it. I understand... It took me a long mm. time to understand what was going on. What was the point of the film? And that doesn't mm. come... Unlike something like Hostel, which, to me, I understand the humour of that from the... Very dark humour from the beginning. In Saw, yeah. I, didn't, I, I didn't see that as much. When you get to the end and Jigsaw reveals himself, I thought that, yeah, okay, I see it now. But, yeah, some of it is is nasty. I've seen... That was the only one I saw in the cinema. I've seen two and three on TV, and I've mm-hmm. sort of stopped there. But they do get nastier and nastier as well. But- yeah, I've seen all eight of them. Like, yeah, we're on eight now, can you believe? Um, and honestly, like, I just felt like I had to watch them to give them the benefit of the doubt. I went, okay, well, you know, we'll see what you do. And after three, just stop there, frankly. Like, it's not worth it. Yeah. You know, like, they, they're just milking the franchise and they're going, how disgusting and, like, unrealistic can we get? And it's not really worth it. But the first one, for me, just blew me away, honestly. But Loved don't that. don't you think that... that uh, I was very interested in what you said at the start. You know, that mm. uh, that uh, trick in, in cinema of dropping you into the middle of something and you haven't got a clue what's going on, yeah. and then the, mm. film, the film reveals itself, mm. I, I see that see that is such a great great cinematic thing it's never done enough and mm. you know and i i watched a couple of films this year dunkirk for example is great because mm-hmm. you just it so it just starts and bang you're in the middle of this okay and yep. i think it that's really clever when the director says no my audience are intelligent enough to work out what's going on and you don't get this huge exposition at the beginning yeah. you know yeah. um and i love that and Okay, I'm probably not going to watch Saw, but that's quite uh, interesting that they do that in the Saw film. Yeah. Probably, yeah, not no, exactly. I mean, it, it starts with two, you know, complete strangers locked in this bathroom. They're tied to respective pipes, and they don't know why the hell they're there. And yeah. it's just amazing. It's that kind of like you say, you, you don't need exposition all the time if yeah. you're going to let the audience figure things out. Hmm. And I love doing that as an audience member. I love going, okay, well you know, what might have happened. Like, I know you guys saw Searching recently and I spent the entire film going, oh my God, like, I want to know what's going on. I want to read her messages. I want to say all this, you know? Um, and it's just nice to have that audience participation, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we love Searching. Mm. Oh, yeah, all of us love that. Yeah. And I didn't see that coming at all, where that was going. No. No, 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 no. I, I just turned to my boyfriend and I was like, what? Honestly, like, I did not <laughs> see that coming. 
just totally shocked. <laughs> yeah, I know, it was it was really the same. And I read up yeah. on it later. They there were little graphics that referenced Unfriended all the way through it, and there's also a reference oh. to M Night Shyamalan in there as well. Oh, fantastic! I yeah. must um, when I rewatch that, I must uh, go back and have a look and have yeah. a proper look. So yeah, my fi- my fifth and final one is The Conjuring. Obviously, this is what all kicked this what is what kicked off this whole you know the no and all this Annabelle stuff and whatever. Yeah. And again, you know, I'm taking you back to the first one. I don't think the sequels are that strong. However, The Conjuring for me, it's good because they play on, you know, real life demonologists, Ed and Lorraine Warren, who were practicing demonologists in, in the US. And whether or not you believe in the supernatural, some people would hire them to exercise things and they would, you know, visit priests and, and work with them to get rid of, of, of entities. And I just thought it was really cool how they played on such prominent figures in in this um in this narrative it also is kind of gone down in my books for making me jump like 50 times in the cinema to the point where i like embarrass myself <laughs> like i genuinely screamed at the conjuring it's one of those where it's like it, not for the faint of heart so you guys would not want to watch that trust me <laughs> you know like this is not the film that you should introduce yourself to horror with at it's all. not gonna because happen it's anyway terrifying <laughs> it, it wouldn't but no. but i absolutely advise against this one for yeah. you guys yeah 28 um, days no, ma- later maybe but not no, that one no. yeah that's about it <laughs> but yeah the conjurer i just love love loved it i mean i don't know about you jeff have you seen it yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah I, it's i i, I like country and part two other than the fact that this reservoir was under this house in enfield uh, yeah because that would happen but other than that I, I thought the first two were really good mm. annabelle i thought was terrible and the nun yeah, is <laughs> even worse than annabelle so what um, what's wrong with horror films why do they get it right the first time is it just like the, dif- as, as the difficult said, second they, album you know in, no no in rock I, and roll? I, I think as lucy said it's getting the characters it's right it's an interesting I, idea isn't it and then yeah, it's sort everything. of over and mm-hmm. over again the same thing exactly. the same theme the same it's, ideas yeah. just you want a fresh concept don't you yeah it's like imagine if you did like searching two for example like uh, you would not point. have the same impact no. you know you wouldn't like i know it's not a horror film but for us as spectators it was very much a oh wow this is completely set on webcams and chats and it's so new and fresh and cool and you know and, and as you know we really enjoyed that same as the first saw film and then we were bloody eight films down the line and you think come on like we want to see something fresh yeah. you know what I, just, I think like you said it just gets repetitive yeah. And and that's the issue for me. It's interesting because I do have a, a, an issue with the Warrens. <laughs> having read up on them, I mean, these are people that started out as ghost hunters, and when the exorcist appeared, suddenly they're demon hunters. Thank you, there. You're not milking this in the slightest, are you? Yes, uh, of course. Of course. I, and I know it was just a film, they blew it up, but their involvement in the, the Enfield Poltergeist case was, was very minimal. So, mm-hmm. But I accept that because that's the way the film is. But yeah, I don't know. I mean,. <sighs> See, this is where it all gets... I mean, have you seen pictures of their museum? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah and, I've done some reading on them. And, and the real-life Annabelle. Where, She's creepy. <laughs> yeah, and have you heard the story about that kid that tapped on the case? I bought The Demonologist, which is their book, and I think I read about that, and you just think, oh, I don't know I don't know if you want to, to say it for your listeners. Yeah, let's say it for the listeners. Yeah. Hello, yeah. let's give us a bit background there. <laughs> so, <laughs> what kid tapped on what so, case? So, 17, 18-year-old, and Lucy, correct me if I'm wrong on this, tapped... On the case in uh, the where the Annabelle uh, doll was in, and so, so a, gla- a glass case in glass their, case, yeah, in their which museum. is very different to the film. By the way, it looks like a 
Is it? Would you say it's a China doll in the films? In in the film, she is very much China, like in her you know appearance, like porcelain. Yeah. But in the um, in reality, she was like more soft material, like a rag doll, wasn't she? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he just tapped on the thing, and he was told not to do it. Left, drove home, and got killed in a car crash on the way home. Oh, oh, yeah, entirely right. coincidental. Oh, yeah, because that would be coincidental. Well, um, I'm only telling you what I read. Uh, you know, exactly. From, well, we're not saying we believe it <laughs> from no, their he, he from is. their press office. All right, then let's let's move let's move on. So, thank you for that. So, let's talk mm-hmm. a bit, a little bit about torture porn then, and yeah. we'll talk about films such as Saw and Hostel. What what are your views yeah. on them? Yeah, so for me, I enjoy them, provided that they have some substance. I do completely understand the criticism of, oh, it's just people showing off they can use, like, SFX, people showing off that they can make things look disgusting. But if there's no substance to it, I kind of lose interest. So for me, that's why I like the first maybe one to three saws because I really enjoyed the narrative but then it just got ridiculous and it was like oh there's another Jigsaw apprentice and it's like what? It doesn't make any sense like Jigsaw's dead now like he died in Saw 3 spoiler but you know it, it's insane and you think it's, it's just ridiculous like why are we continuing this on? And I feel like they can be done well provided again you have a, a good narrative a good reason for it and a good motive I did like Hostel as well but not as much I mean out of the two I would pick Saw every time Okay, it's interesting. Um, yeah, I'd go the other way, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I got that vibe from you. It'd be interesting yeah. to, to know why you, you didn't... Because, as I said, we saw you didn't really know the motivation behind what was going on until the end of the film. The whole thing with Hostel is I saw the joke straight away. You know, the Americans in this country saying, oh, well, you know, we, we thought we'd wait till the war's over and we'll come here. Where, of course, there was there was no there never was a war. It clearly mm-hmm. shows the Americans have no understanding how European countries and culture work. Yes, and, yes. <laughs> and, and that was the whole setup of it, you know. We'll torture them because we can and because, yeah, we enjoy torturing mm-hmm. Americans. Yeah. I, I saw the joke. I, I thought it was very funny. Mm. No, I, I do think, you know, it's like any genre, you know, they have their films that are like utter write-offs, utter rubbish. And they have the ones that are actually a pretty decent watch if you are if you have a stomach for it. I don't know necessarily if it would be classed as torture porn per se, but I don't know if you know Lars von Trier's Antichrist. Which I haven't star, seen it. I know the film. I haven't seen it. star Willem Dafoe, actually. He was fantastic in that film and it's very you know visceral and very disturbingly graphic there's a lot of like sexual violence and that kind of thing but but there's a good story behind it and i feel like if that's there you can kind of justify the the grittiness of it but too often horror films just just do it to make people squirm like you leave the cinema and you just think oh well i got nothing from that and to me there's nothing more disappointing than plot holes or a disappointing narrative or a weak story Okay. Um, oh, like you, yeah, like you said earlier, like, with, with The Nun, like you said, I haven't seen it and I don't really have many intentions to do so. It doesn't no, sound no. very good. Save, save your money. Exactly. So I just, you know, I might, I might catch it on Netflix if it comes on, but I, I'm not that fussed, to be honest. And too often, I think, with horror in, genre, in, in general, rather, um, that it just sort of, you know, people cash out on franchises, they cash out on oh, we've got a massive budget, let's just make things spooky, let's make things jump out, and there's no substance. Like, if, if torture porn doesn't have substance and it's 
just blood and just guts, then I've got no interest in it. So completely understand the criticism, trust me. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that, that's fine. I think you're absolutely mm. right. If it hasn't got character, if it hasn't got that hook that takes you into it, it it's mm-hmm. not going to work. I would say for The Nun, absolutely. Just watch a Hammer Dracula film and you are watching the same film, essentially. <laughs> but actually with better <laughs> character. So, But yeah, Lars von Trier's... I've, I've not really watched any of his films, I've got to be honest. Um, that is one area. No, well, it doesn't really appeal. It just looks so. Well, he's a dick to start off with, right? Um, In your opinion, yeah, no, and no he comment. doesn't like yeah. you either. Oh, yeah. that's right. Yeah, because he got banned for Nazi comments. That's right. Yeah. So, um, but he's, um, and I know he says some of it for just to just to be controversial. Yeah, we'll come back on that. I need to think on that. I, I almost went off script on something then, but I'll leave that for the moment because I'm conscious <laughs> of time. So I'm going to jump to the next question, if that's okay. Yes, absolutely. My favourite horror film of this period is The Descent. What's your thoughts mm-hmm. on that one? I absolutely love The Descent. I'm so happy that you chose that one. Yeah. I was actually introduced to this in a film studies class because I used to take it in, in sixth form college. In my lecture, I love. I just thought that Neil Marshall is fantastic and what he's created here is this claustrophobic friends kind of turning on each other, wonderful narrative. And, and I'm claustrophobic, so it, this idea of going into a cave and it collapsing on me is terrifying. I mean, it's not a pleasant situation for anybody, but for me, it's like 10 times worse. So what those girls did in that film to me is insane. Like, why would you do that? Yeah. (laughs) But I just absolutely love the way the crawlers are introduced to us as the audience and to the girls. And that, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff, but I do believe the the crawlers, the the girls didn't know what they looked like until the scene where they come in. So they use that sense of genuine fear that you're watching so you that first jump scare they're scared as well and i love that and i just thought it was very clever i I think the whole thing i mean it starts really dark with the death of a child absolutely yes and and, you know that's that really sets the tone for the best of the film i think and and what the cinema when i saw in the cinema people were walking out but they were walking out at scenes where they were stuck in the tunnels so no monsters had been introduced by this point so it's good and I refuse point blank to watch the sequel because the Americans, you know, the Americans changed the end. Yes, because our, our ending, and again, spoiler alert, listeners, but, you know, she kind of dreams that she gets out yes. of the cave and then it kind of cuts to where she's on the ground and they're coming towards her. Yeah. And then it just stops. And for us, that's such a fantastic ending. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's that it's that dread. It's that you could not move those rocks even if you wanted to, you know, I mean, and she did want to, but you just could not do it. You were just stuck. And yeah, I, I hate the American ending with a passion. Yeah. <laughs> just think it's yeah. so ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. So, I so, will not watch the sequel. So so for you guys, the, yeah. the American ending is she has this dream that she's escaped. And in the reality, as Lucy just said, it cuts back. But the Americans played it like that. That dream was reality. So they were then able to do a sequel of her going back in. Absolute bollocks. Really. <laughs> I can't think of another yeah, that- word to describe it. There was no way she could have escaped that. No. Not at all. No, and it just spoiled it, so I refused to watch it. So for me, horror films are a dark mirror on the state of the world. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we've got things like Orange Men in America, we've got Brexit here, (laughs) and I think as a result, because you've got these external pressures you can't control, horror films are are enjoying incredible success. Where do you see this going over the next couple of years? Do you think this will continue? Yeah, I, I love this question because I feel like I absolutely agree with you that horror does kind of play on societal anxieties about the world, the state of the economy, the state of pol- politics and, you know, the worlds that we live in. So I think for me, 
yes, I do. I do think there will be more um, horror films about US politics, and I would certainly watch that. I mean, we are, we're seeing films recently, and I, I haven't seen it. We've seen like you know, like Black Klansman, and we've seen like Get Out, which I love. Get Out, very much about the, the racial issues within America and these kind of things. And I feel like, especially with Trump, it's just going to get worse. Am I going to have more films about how this horrible racist society is is still so prevalent in the US? You know, and and I feel like it's such a good backdrop for horror. Um, I also would I would love to see a Brexit kind of themed film. I mean, I haven't seen one yet, but open to it. <laughs> you oh, know, it's, it's a very tough time for us as a country. I think, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, absolutely. Uh, I suspect mm. they're coming. Lucy, thank you very much. That was incredibly informative. Thank you for your insightful opinions. You're having look- me. Oh, you're more than welcome. We look forward to catching up with you again next month. Maybe Neil will have watched some of your films uh, that we've spoken about by then. No. Graham? Uh, no. no. Okay. So thank you very much, Lucy. Yep. And thank from you. all of us, thank it's you. goodbye. Thanks, Lucy. Absolutely fascinating. However, if you think like Jeff does, you can persuade me to watch those films. Think again. Okay. Time for us to move over to the movie news desk. Welcome to the Movie News Desk. And as I carefully check my notes to make sure Jeff hasn't slipped in anything I don't want to talk about, no, it all looks good. Graham, I am actually hurt by that. (laughs) It's like you don't trust me. (laughs) And you'd be right. How many months have I had Gibson news? One. (laughs) A dozen. I said this looks okay. An update on Irish actor Colin Farrell, great actor, uh, Mr. Farrell had a blistering start to his career with films such as Tigerland, Phone Booth and Minority Report. Then, unfortunately, it all went wrong with choices such as Alexander and Miami Vice and, of course, those famous issues in a personal life. Which we're not going to cover. But even then, there were the odd movie gems such as In Bruges, oh, great film, and The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Now he appears to be back with a vengeance with four top films coming in the next 18 months. First up, and we have mentioned this movie before, it's Steve McQueen's Widows, which has just been announced as the opening film of this year's London Film Festival. This tough drama, a cinema reworking of the Linda LaPlante British TV series, is expected to be a big contender in the next awards season. It's not surprising as award-winning director Steve McQueen has brought together an amazing ensemble cast which includes Viola Davis, Oscar winner for Fences, Michelle Rodriguez, so underused in the Fast and the Furious movies, Liam Neeson, Robert Duvall and of course Colin Farrell. Widows opens in November and I think an Atmaflix outing is required for that movie. Next up for Mr Farrell is one of the big ones of next year. Dumbo. Is Colin Farrell playing Jeff? <laughs> Cheeky bastard. <laughs> Not quite. It's a live-action remake of the famous Disney animated feature about a flying elephant. In this film, Colin will play a character called Holt Farrier, a one-armed World War II veteran and former circus star who, along with his two children, help care for the baby animal with the big ears. That includes protecting him from the evil couple of Michael Keaton and Eva Green, who just want to exploit the young and special creature. Also in the cast are Danny DeVito and Alan Arkin. 
As this is directed by Tim Burton, we are expecting another Disney film to pass the $1 billion earnings mark when it opens next Easter. Just as an aside, we've been told the sets for this film are fantastic and were created without the use of special effects. It's a clear hit for Mr. Farrell or I'll be joining the circus. Oh, there's an option. (laughs) Now, filming on Dumbo is complete. Colin Farrell is lined up for a couple of action films. First up, and just started filming, is Eve, in which he stars alongside Jessica Chastain. Miss Chastain headlines this action film in which she plays Eve, a black ops soldier, and Colin will play her boss in the organisation. After that, the very busy Mr. Farrell will start work on War Pigs with... Oh, Jeff, you bastard. Graham, is there any need for that? Is there a problem? (laughs) Why is this bit in very small font? You devious. You buried Gibson News in this report. Colin Farrell is starring alongside Mel Bloody Gibson in this action (laughs) film. Oh, so he is. I must have missed that. I was was too excited about going to watch Lucky when I wrote it. Uh Uh Sure, getting revenge on me for the sports debate, are you? Sports fiddle. (laughs) Okay, as Magnus would say, I've started, so I'll finish. War Pigs, and I suspect that title will change, is about a group of ex-Marines who go on a revenge trail after one of their number is killed by a gang of drug traffickers. There are stories that the events in this film take place just after World War II although that seems unlikely. We think that rumour has come about because it is being made by director Tommy Vicola, who previously made the cult hit Dead Snow. As well as Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters. Oh, good grief. <laughs> anyway, filming on War Pigs is due to start in October, after which Mel Gibson will start on his much-talked-about, by me, thanks Jeff, World War II film Destroyer. I think Mr. Farrell will need a well-earned rest after those four and having to work with Mel. Jeff, over to you for more Gibson news, perhaps. No, but I suspect you're on his Christmas card list now, Graham. (laughs) Instead, I'm going to talk about a movie currently filming over in Wexford, which is doubling, amazingly enough, for Cornwall. Over there, a big-budget screen version of Jacqueline Wilson's novel Four Kids and It is being made. Now, if that title sounds familiar... The book and, of course, the film are a contemporary version of Edith Nesbitt's classic Five Children and It. Jacqueline Wilson, most famous for her Tracy Beaker novels, I assume you've read them, Neil? Yep. I thought so. Has fashioned a kind of sequel. In this tale, a group of children come across the Samid, which they recognise from the original story, and start demanding it grants them their wishes. The grumpy Samid reluctantly grants the wishes which, of course, unleashes mayhem. Grumpy and reluctant. Now, you'll be forgiven for thinking Neil took the part of the old creature, but that is being voiced and part motion captured by Michael Caine. Although I suppose you are the same age, Neil, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) Although I think Neil would have done a terrific job, but then again, he is heavily involved in Strictly Come Theresa May at the moment. (laughs) You just got so excited. You just blurted that one out, didn't you? Yes. (laughs) Four Kids and It sounds like it will be a winner when it opens next year Also in the cast are Russell Brand as the villain And former Girls Aloud star Cheryl Hey Neil, didn't she have a Chelsea connection once? Maybe, but we don't talk about that 
Okay, moving on. Something Chelsea can't do. Is it do. kind of a football Tourette's? You can't stop yourself. <laughs> it's like you and the bloody sports thing, isn't it? Um, watch out also, going back to the film, for Matthew Good. Best known to Graham for his role in Watchmen, although currently on TV in A Discovery of Witches, who, after he completes this movie, will join the cast of Downton Abbey the movie, which promises to be a massive hit in UK cinemas next autumn. Somewhere for the Mamma Mia crowd to go to. Neil, top that one. Easy. You've only talked about one family film being made. I'm going to talk about two. Talk about family film envy. (laughs) That's again, you're just making it up, aren't you? (laughs) Ignoring you, as I usually do, here are two upcoming films which sound very promising. First up, and currently filming in Queensland, is Dora the Explorer, a live-action feature based on the animated... Nickelodeon TV series, assuming you've got children under the age of five. Isabella Isabella Mona Transformers The Last Night, Sicario, Day of the Soldado, stars as Dora in this big screen outing. Dora and her friends, Boots, her monkey, and Diego, who we think is human, (laughs) set off to rescue her parents and find a lost Inca civilization. Sounds exciting. Also exciting is the fact that at the flick's favourite Michael Peña is in the cast. Add to that the director is James Bobin, the director of the latest two Muppet films and also the director of Flight of the Concords. Gentlemen, I think we might have to go and see this one. We'll find out how good it is when it opens in the UK next August. But wait, there's more. Director Chris McKay, who worked on the Lego movies, is currently developing a full-length Wall E. Coyote movie for Warner Brothers. Jeff, you remind me of the Coyote all the times you try and get one over on me and always fail. Sports movies, anyone? Maybe. <laughs> anyway, back to the film, which is to be called Coyote vs. Acme. It will revolve around Wal E's attempts to get back at Acme for all the gadgets that they've sold him over the years and which have failed. Is this a courtroom drama? Is Emma Thompson in it? <laughs> Given the irreverence of the Lego movies, that combination with the Warner Brothers animation style should make this an absolute winner. Don't hold your breath, though. This will be a few years before it gets to the big screen. Can't wait, as I love the Lego movies. Okay, time to move to the review desk. Let's begin our review section this month with Jeff's take on the puppet movie, The Happy Time Murders. Puppet movie? He's going to destroy another children's film like he did with the Christo Robin and the Paid Holidays Act last month. (laughs) Hopefully not. The Happy Time Murders can be described as many things, Neil, but a children's movie, no, even though it was directed by Brian Henson. Let me start the synopsis by saying, and I have always wanted to say this, in a world where... Jeff doesn't monologue. Not bad. In a world where puppets and humans live together, life is nothing like a children's fantasy film. These puppets have their own versions of sex clubs, drugs and all sorts of other vices. Trying to survive this existence is Phil Phillips, voiced by puppeteer Bill Beretta. Phil was once a police detective until he was disgraced and fired. However, when the puppet and human cast of an old sitcom called The Happy Time Gang are being murdered, Phil is brought back from retirement to the police to help solve the case. The only problem... He has to work with his old partner, human detective, Connie Edwards, Melissa McCarthy. It was Edwards who got Phil fired, and there is no love lost between these two. So, Jeff, 
does this odd cop buddy movie work or do you see too many strings? <laughs> well, Graham, you certainly see a lot of string in one oh. sequence in particular. <laughs> Overall, though, there are some very funny moments, but ultimately the script is weak and because of too much improvisation, it runs out of steam well before the end. For me, this is a real shame, as based on everything I heard in advance about this movie, I had marked The Happy Time Murders as one of the top ten films to see in 2018. Clearly one of my mistakes. Up there with letting others plan the lucky visit. <laughs> I was very excited about this movie, and whilst it did have a number of very funny moments, it was still a massive disappointment. I think I said to both of you after I'd seen it that with that much talent, a really clever idea and a very funny trailer, it was it was just a tragic waste of everyone's time on both sides of the screen. I genuinely tried to like this movie, but my patience ran out about the middle of the second act. Disappointing. Funny in places, some of the jokes work, mm. but as Jeff said, the film just peters out towards the end. At least the film's short... <laughs> Short, but seemed so much longer. <laughs> Moving on. Last month, when reviewing Christopher Robin, another movie which mixes human and non-human characters, I mentioned a number of things. Obviously, there's the importance of the Payne oh, Holiday Act. Like oh, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> but also the fact the human actors were outperformed by the animated ones. The Happy Time Murders, unfortunately, is the same. Main puppet character Phil Phillips is the standard. Mm. He has the world weariness of a movie private detective and, of course, thanks to the magic of puppetry, can be made to look like everyone's version of a private eye. However, it is Bill Beretta's vocal performance which makes Phil a complete character. Thinking about this, I should animate you, Neil. <laughs> you would be great as a glove puppet. I'll just warm my hands first. You keep your hands to yourself. Ooh, this has gone in a very dark direction. <laughs> Right, my hands back. Alternatively, <laughs> oh, <laughs> ouch. Alternatively, <laughs> alternatively, the Muppets, and I've mentioned this to you, Neil, have some vacancies now Bert and Ernie have set up home together. But I digress, so let's return yes, to the film. Do. Compared to Phil, most of the human characters do not make an impression. Melissa McCarthy, who cost a fair percentage of the film's budget, is the case in point. Her improvised humour is simply not funny. As a result, her character of Detective Edwards makes no impression. In fact, it would probably have played better if they changed the sex of this character to make an old-fashioned buddy movie. Someone like Steve Carell, perhaps. Oh, that's a great one. Yeah, because she was dreadful. Yeah. She mm. was dreadful. Yeah, and, and to be fair to Miss McCarthy, she's not alone. Most of the human cast mm. make little or no impression. Only Maya Rudolph gives yes. something approaching a performance. As Phil's secretary bubbles, mm. she nails the part of the faithful and overlooked helper. The addition of her faint lisp is inspired. A shame no one else had been as committed to their roles. Oh, yeah. Uh, I was going to mention her as well. Wonderful. Completely underplaying her role. She had the weight of the world on her shoulders and never strayed out of character. I loved her. Melissa McCarthy had a moment. Some snorting grade-A sucrose was mm. funny, but otherwise not her best work. Bob Hoskins in Roger Rabbit is the benchmark. She failed to deliver. The rest were good, but if the star performer doesn't work, there's no hope for the film. Maybe she should have sought the advice of Michael Caine on how to deal with <laughs> Muppets in a film. I like yeah, that. Good point. And considering that was the same director with Michael Caine, really? this is doubly sad. 
Director Brian Henson just doesn't seem in control of the material. Something of a shock when you consider Henson Studios have been developing this film for over a decade. It seems to me that Mr Henson gave in to his star's desire to improvise scenes rather than having a tightly constructed story. At 90 minutes it just seems too long and at times painfully so. And this from the man who created one of the best Muppet films ever, we've already mentioned it, A Muppet Christmas Carol. But then that film had a strong template to follow. Maybe working with a number of human actors was the problem. Whatever it was, he's made some serious mistakes with this feature. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I also thought the direction was too low-key for a comedy. I'm beginning to hate the word improv, actually. This month I also saw The Spy Who Dumped Me. That also featured extended improvisation from Kate McKinnon, who I love, but I think she is much funnier when she has a good, solid script idea to work with. Agreed. She is really good in Saturday Night Live when it's improvised sketches, mm-hmm. but not in a full feature. And this improvisation, as a result of it here, elements were lost, cutting this film back to its most basic. And I don't mean the humour, although the porn sequence with the puppet cow being oh, milked in that way God, no. will stay with me for a long time. <laughs> I mean, this film is supposed to be a parable about racism. This is best typified when Phil, at the beginning of the movie, stops a gang of kids from destroying a puppet trying to entertain on a street corner. This theme, of course, is nothing new. It was at the heart of such films as Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Alien Nation. Indeed, The Happy Time Murders owes a great deal to Roger Rabbit, and it doesn't come off well in comparison. Both films have a detective plot, which ultimately reveal an underlying conspiracy. With Roger Rabbit, it was the destruction of all tunes. Happy Time Murders... Much more low-key, with a simple tale of revenge on Phil for a past accident. However, Roger Rabbit also took time to create the world and its rules. As crazy as it was, you could follow it, and the story did, at its heart, have an interest in mystery. This film takes no time to set up those rules. In fact, it doesn't seem to care. The focus seems to be the next joke. That's it. And while some are funny... It runs out of steam, as we said before, well before the end. There is no mystery at its heart that it's worth uncovering. And also, as I said earlier, Miss McCarthy adds nothing to the film. No wonder the producers of Sesame Street tried to sue them. They must have seen a rough cut and realised it's an embarrassment for the puppet world. Couldn't agree more. Yes, all of the above, Jeff. Yikes. Are we agreeing on something? It's just difficult for me to say. I did. I did want to like it, but... I, sadly, I have to agree. Well said, Jeff. Wow. Can we have that as a special? Maybe I'll put that as a thing on my phone. Brilliant. Please cut that. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. Well, lads, I'm stunned by that. Um, so <laughs> the only thing I can do is look at some of the, the funny stuff of the film, yeah. and that is some of the quotable dialogue. Now, I can't quote much of it on this podcast. There are some very funny lines. However, you're a two I think Graham will let me get away with. The first one. Uh, it's from Melissa McCarthy. I unsewed your mother and made a jacket out of her. Or my favourite, he's a blue loser puppet with a felt cock. <laughs> At that point, I'd love to say kneel over to you, but I think it's you, Graham. <laughs> I liked um, his fill in, to which Meyer Rudolph replies in total deadpan. No, he's servicing a client. I also liked clean up on aisle Phil. <laughs> 
This is why you don't go fishing in your own gene pool. Oh, that was a great line. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. That was very funny, Neil. One of the best in the film. And let's go from something that was good there to something else that was good, which are the visual effects. In fact, they're so good at integrating the puppets and the humans, it makes it more annoying. They couldn't get a script that worked for that. All that technical effort, which is lost because the world just simply doesn't gel. Oh, but stick around for the end credits which shows how all this was put together. It's always sad when the making of is better than the movie. Oh, true. I did stick around for the end credits, and after sitting through the terrible third act, it was a real breath of fresh air and very clever. The Muppets are always well done, and with decades of practice, they should be. As the guys say, watch the end credit sequence. Uh, Speaking of end credit sequences, the one from Kubo and the Two Strings is the best How Did We Do It that I've seen. Second best Richard Aoyobi and Nick Frost commentary through the closing credits of Box Trolls. Oh, that's great. I love that one. Let's stick with the good news here and continue with technical elements, which seem to be where this film does excel, and talk about cinematography. And I think Mitchell Ambertson does an excellent job. The lighting of Los Angeles does bring to mind some of those classic-looking detective movies like Chinatown. Of course, given the theme and characters, Mitchell also enhances the colour and the spectacle, as he did in one of his earlier films, Now You See Me. Oh, I, I completely missed that. Damn! I was so annoyed at the movie, I missed the... The subtle cinematography, because you just get... You start to lose it in the third act, and you think... Yes, Yes, I agree, yeah. Now I think about it, yeah. It was very Chinatown in parts, yeah. Again, technical elements, spot on. Yeah, but again, the problem was the script, the story, and McCarthy's improv. All of the technical components of this movie were fine. Jeff, what about the music? Any comments? Well, Christopher Leneritz is normally in his elements with this type of comedy. Here is score, and indeed the songs used make no impression whatsoever. It's just another disappointing aspect. OK, we're all clearly disappointed, but what about our listeners? Well, they're not holding back either. This from film, which follows on from what we've been discussing. The film, whilst technically interesting, does fall quite short of being enjoyable to watch. The cop-turned-PI storyline is generic, so the key to success here is how funny you will find the film, and that boils down to how funny are puppets swearing and making sex jokes. From Deck, who saw it with Neil and I, this is his view. Entertaining comedy, laughed out loud a few times, the concept is good, and Phil Phillips a good lead. I was worried at the start they would run out of jokes, but they managed to fill the 90 minutes. The weakest thing was Melissa McCarthy, 6.5 out of 10. Paul is not messing about with his verdict, <laughs> as Neil said earlier, and we had to cut it to be allowed to get it past Sensor Graham. <laughs> Here we go. Are you sitting comfortably? Worst film I have seen this year by some distance. I just can't believe how awful it was. Unfunny, childishly crude, truly appalling. OK, lads, time to sum up. I'll get on my soapbox again. Fix the bloody script and stop with all the improv. This improv trend is really just ruining my love for comedy movies. So annoying. And again, disappointing. So much potential and they blew it. Well, I can't disagree. I was hoping for a more adult version of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but instead got something akin to Team America World Police. I like World Pol- Team America World Police. And that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> that film starts funny, but quickly okay. runs out of steam. Yeah. For the well, happy time point. murders to work, you have to believe in its world and its story. Neither hold up. As a comedy, it does have some very funny moments, but simply not enough. 
and the casting of Melissa McCarthy was a huge mistake. To be honest, I have seen worse comedies this year. The festival, I'm looking at you. <laughs> However, considering its time in development, this should have been far better. Okay, if the Happy Time Murders, after all we said, still appeals to you, then I would also recommend to you mental health treatment <laughs> and the following good examples of how you can do this properly. <laughs> Who Framed Roger Rabbit, a film that succeeds where this one fails in combining humans and animated characters. Labyrinth, Brian's yes. dad Jim, sadly missed. Yeah. directs this wonderful fantasy starring David Bowie and Jennifer Connelly, which blends a story using humans and puppets. The Muppet Christmas Carol, which we also referred to a couple of times, clearly director Brian Henson's best film and a magical retelling of the Charles Dickens story, which features Michael Caine and the Muppets. Finally, The Maltese Falcon. What? The, yeah, the Humphrey Bogart classic, which shows how to make a detective oh, film. All right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> From that incredulous reaction from Graham, let's go to his <laughs> review. After the silly choice Jeff made this month, let's go to a more serious film from Graham. The Miseducation of Cameron Post, the winner of the grand prize at this year's Sundance Film Festival and based on the acclaimed book by Emily M. Danforth. Set in 1993, Chloe Grace Moretz plays teenager Cameron, who lives in a deeply religious area of Montana. After she's caught having a sexual encounter with her best friend Coley, Quinn Shepherd, her very religious aunt sends her to God's promise. That quaint-sounding title is actually the name of a gay conversion camp where they set out to cure people with SSA, same-sex attraction. Will Cameron be manipulated by the camp owners, or will she and others be able to free herself of their control? Graham, the miseducation of Cameron Post sounds quite disturbing. Does this subject matter make for a good film? Yes, I think it does. In a nutshell, it's a great little movie. Good story, very well acted, very well acted, with clear direction and smart cinematography. A cut above the norm. The music is also well matched to the discordant nature of the subject matter of the movie. I find it a timely coming-of-age story with wit, compassion and a lightness of spirit. It was directed with an understanding of the subject matter. I later read that the director, Desiri Akavan, had been sent to a similar camp to deal with an eating disorder. I don't know about that, Graham. That may be an explanation why I came away hungry from the miseducation of Cameron Post. Its intentions are clearly worthy. However, that worthiness is undermined by it being so low-key and, to be honest, for me, an unconvincing main performance. It is snack light. Interesting while you're eating it, but quickly forgotten. And soon after, you need something more substantial. One flew of the cuckoo's nest as a main course, perhaps. I sat there in disbelief at the stupidity of adults. It's as if they read Philip Pullman's Dark Materials and wondered if they could delete kids' souls. Like Graham, I found it really good coming-of-age film. Well told. Thank you, Neil. The stark reality of the story was the thing that came through to me. Every single character, situation and motivation in this movie is recognisable. Um, the bewilderment of the kids who are being punished for like who they are. It's interesting and a fact that all three of us discussed on our way back to the car after the movie was that everyone's anguish came from 
outside sources. We had one young man who was sent there by his father because he was too effeminate, another because his father was trying to get into politics and a gay son would ruin his chances. Cameron's own aunt takes her to God's promise. All of these kids have been sent to the centre for brainwashing by people who claim to love them in, well, in their minds they love them. I'm sure they think they are doing the right thing. In fact, in the movie, the main psychologist compares homosexuality to drug or alcohol addiction. I did like the name of the institution, though. God's promise. Nicely pious, but completely vague. The hero of this movie says it all in the line, programming people to hate themselves. I think you're overreacting, Graham. <laughs> to be fair, this camp looked a nice place to visit. Oh, it looks good in the guidebook. However, all joking aside, that does mask the true nature of the place. Now, I wouldn't say it's horrific, more a place of confusion. The camp leaders just don't know what they're doing. Absolutely. They're just making it up as they go along. As per usual, when this happened, bullies and followers are drawn to the place like moths to a flame. I wouldn't be surprised if it's what it is still like today. However... The film misses a trick by not having enough anger to focus on the real problem. And that is the parents and the guardians. They and their twisted ways and refusal to accept the children for what they are are the reasons for such place existing. These real villains are not focused on. The father who thinks his son is too effeminate mm. is never shown. The parents who are shown are just two-dimensional. For example, the decision to send Cameron to the camp pretty much happens off-screen. We need to see that twisted thought process. Now, with all that said, for me, the best scene involves one of these camp counsellors. When one child almost dies through a suicide attempt, the camp counsellor, Reverend Rick, the excellent John Gallagher Jr. He was, he was brilliant. He yeah. was. Mm. Yeah. Breaks down when having to confront his feelings on the incident and the harm the camp has done. A shame the film doesn't have the righteous anger to make similar sequences memorable. It was a simple camp to reinforce a message that became a correction for certain. Mm. The more we knew about the place, we, the more we feared for the kids. The disturbing thing, as Graham and Jeff said, the parents live in fear of having a free-thinking child in the way. Yep, I thought I thought it was just solid work. Um, I thought the direction was great. Um, the, I just thought the claustrophobia, the confusion, and the final release were all done so well and with conviction. I loved that there was a subtext running through the whole movie that was spoken through looks and glances and subtle little movements by the kids that the adults, oh jeez, did I just say adults, hmm. um, never spotted. Akavan's film is an angry depiction of Christianity that is openly hostile to anyone whose sexuality sits contrary to the notion of the traditional nuclear family. I'm sorry, Jeff, I, I disagree with your remark uh, about righteous anger. I think the underplayed seething anger is the point this is not one flew over this cuckoo's nest because they are confused and frightened young people they are going through a very frightening time for them the emergence of their sexuality and suddenly they're told by their parents and guardians that they have the wrong sexuality 
because it doesn't fit with our Christian stereotypes. There is very little anger because they are constantly unsure of their place in the world. At every turn, they are slapped down and intimidated. They have their hair forcibly shaved. Now, to be fair, his hair was a bit long. (laughs) (laughs) And they are reprimanded for liking good music and are forced to listen to Christian rock, which is now being classified by the United Nations as a crime against humanity. I liked it. Jeff, you did not like it. It's appalling. Uh, And when Cameron dances on the table for fun, they find that, oh, fun is outlawed. We see clearly what happens to people who rebel or fight back as they are slammed to the floor and pinned there and humiliated and abandoned by their parents. For me, the low-key, grinding, relentless abuse was the whole point of the movie. My problem with what you're saying is... That anger doesn't come across on screen. I agree with you that Miss Akavan is a first-rate director. However, in this instance, she is too reverential to her source material. That anger from the gut needs to be shown, and all too often, it isn't. They weren't angry because they were too scared, Mm. confused and bewildered to get to anger. They didn't get anywhere near. Why did their parents do this to them? Mm. Okay, well, moving on from anger, because I think we're going to disagree on that point. Yep. Uh, I'd like to talk about the film's ending. Now, if you haven't seen it, you may want to skip over the next minute. Desiree Anavans cleverly ends the film with two very long scenes. For me, one works and the other doesn't. The first shows our group of heroes as they're about to put their escape plan into action. It is potentially their last morning at God's promise. As they sit there with their breakfast, Reverend Rick joins them. And after a wonderfully awkward sequence, the three get up and leave for their new life. Reverend Rick just sits there, unaware he's trapped in both the frame and the camp. Wonderful stuff. Unfortunately, the last scene of the film, involving the three sitting in the back of an open truck, is just too long and self-indulgent. And I say that even though there's a nice reference to hope behind them in terms of the Democratic Party sticker for Clinton and Gore. No, I, I, I'm sorry, Jeff. I t- totally disagree. I thought that end sequence was perfect. There was the high of the interaction with Reverend Rick, where you know it was just so well played, and then it just calmly and they just walk away from all this madness. I thought that was beautifully. You have a long shot of the back of them just walking away from the camera, and I thought yeah. that was so well done. And then the car, and then his. The young man's sexuality comes out as he starts flirting with a guy on a motorbike. I just thought it was just so... They're free, they're able to express themselves sexually, and I thought, yeah, that's that's the ideal answer. They've they've got away from these mad people. Yeah. Okay, let's pull this back to the actors. I thought everyone in this movie was just brilliant. Um, not a single lightweight in the entire ensemble. The Bad Kids, or The Breakfast Club, as I thought of them, Cameron Post is played by Chloe Grace Moretz. A great performance as a confused teenager. Lots of pouting, moody looks and long silences. I love the fragility of her character. The smart mouth dancing on top of the table one moment and then hiding under the desk, crying on the phone the next moment. Great range. I thought Jane Fonda played by Sasha Lane. Yes, that's really her name in the film, Jane Fonda. The archetypal survivor, smart kid who grew up in a commune. I love the fact that she was 
instantly able to see through all the bullshit. She gives Cameron advice on how to cheat on her core iceberg test so the grown-ups will be happy. She smuggles weed in her false leg. I also like that her character was bisexual and that the staff were totally confused about how to deal with somebody who was bisexual. Uh, lastly, Adam Red Eagle, played by Forrest Goodluck, who described himself as a Native American David Bowie. <laughs> I like that. The scene where he is having his hair cut was, for me, so well played. But justified, because oh, that hair was too long. <laughs> OK, thanks, Grandad. Also well played were the brother and sister team leaders of God's Promise, Reverend Rick, probably the most tragic figure in this movie, a homosexual man so deluded he created his own redemption story set in a gay bar. A story so thin the Breakfast Club see right through it. It's held up as model of what these kids can achieve if they put in the hard work. So naturally, he's the most tragic figure in the whole film. His sister, Dr. Marsh, played by Jennifer L, brings a little of Louise Fletcher's Nurse Ratchet from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. However, where Ratchet's character was completely obsessed with procedure, Dr. Marsh is a third-rate psychobabble peddling incompetent, driving one of the young men to a personal tragedy, described by Adam as a Disney villain. <laughs> Finally, a quick mention for Cameron's roommate Erin, Emily Skeggs, a football nut extremely devoted to finding a Christian salvation. That poor girl is so lost and conflicted. A cheery personality destroyed by ignorance, but a great performance. I agree totally with your comments about Jennifer Earl and John Gallagher Jr., I thought he was tremendous in the TV series The Newsroom and the film 10 Cloverfield Place. This is yet another brilliant performance and, in my opinion, the best in the film. Now, I've already said that I wasn't that impressed with Chloe Grace Moretz. She's more of a reactor than an actor in this oh, film. Harsh. So, we wish um, you, oh, that's a wee bit harsh. Well, to you, to you guys, but, you know, I, I, I'm good at this thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll move on to other performances I admired. Forrest Goodluck, best known for playing Leonardo DiCaprio's son in The Revenant, is really good. As is Emily Skegg, who for most of the film you see is almost comic relief. That is until one late night sequence with Miss Moretz, where through her actions she reveals her pain and inner torment. Powerful stuff. Mm. Who stood out for you, Neil? Moretz plays it like a dazed teenager that's been abandoned by everyone, including her friend, and cannot work out where she is or why. I thought she was really good. Everyone, in fact, did an excellent job, and Dr Marsh was really creepy. Yeah, and, and let's not forget, her character, Chloe Moretz, is an orphan. So she's yeah. already been abandoned by her real parents, and now she's abandoned by her stepmother. Uh, it's, uh, it was just tragic. Okay, let's move on with some of the technical things. I thought the cinematography of Ashley Cooper was great. Uh, the wonderful handheld moment with the breakfast club in the woods. I love the contrast between the inside the institution and the outside. The warm, rich colours of the countryside contrasting with the stark, almost bleached out interiors of God's Promise. Now, on this, I'm in 100% agreement with you. Bloody that, hell. Oh, well, yeah, let's not make the most of it. Uh, that contrast is wonderful. It makes the sunlit surroundings almost project a heavenly glow, one that's corrupted by those mm. dark interiors. Yep, agree. OK, guys, time for your final comments. Listening to you both, I agree that this is a serious film. 
on a serious and very real subject. A shame that it is treated so reverentially and low-key. From the script to the central performance. For me, as good as it is, it's a missed opportunity. And especially, as you think, this nonsense still exists in 41 American states. I disagree, of course. The tale is told from the perspective of Cameron Post. Her world has collapsed and she's been sent to a retreat to correct her SSA. She doesn't know why she, where she is, why she's there and what she's supposed to do. Of course, it's low-key. Cameron is treated with respect by the filmmakers, if not by the church or her parents. I just wanted to say SSA it was yeah. just such a great phrase because Terrible. they couldn't say the word gay. No. So they had to make up their own word yeah. and letters. Oh, it's just the, 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 the layers of sort of brutality and stupidity and ignorance and psychobubble would just be unbelief. Anyway, closing comments. Uh, just, um, I find it interesting that the tone of this movie has appeared in a number of movies in the last year. It would appear that the true horror of this year is not the nun, but the corrupting power of fundamentalist religions. If you look at movies like Lady Bird, where the crushing burden of Catholicism in her school colours her judgment of the entire town. Now, quite possibly, that's the worst <laughs> film of the year. And in fact, <laughs> makes the Happy Time Murders look like a classic. <laughs> no, I think the critics disagree with you there, Jeff. Yeah, they're wrong. <laughs> OK, fine. Right, um, the Children's Act uh, deals with the problems of devout Jehovah Witnesses. The Apostate, which I haven't seen, again dealing with issues of Jehovah Witnesses' religion. And Disobedience, which focuses on, again, lesbian love, but this time in an Orthodox Jewish family in London. This one, unlike Miss Education, has big stars attached to it in The Two Rachels, Vice and McAdams. Okay, and a quick shout-out to the Watershed Cinema in Bristol. Great cinema, friendly, knowledgeable staff. Who know how to time their movies. <laughs> if you like the central theme of this movie, which for me was persecution for who you are and the final joy of escape, then you might like these other movies with a similar theme. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which we've already mentioned, is similar in structure, but only with a much, much darker feel. The Shawshank Redemption, brutal, but the final payout is outstanding. And The Count of Monte Cristo. There are so many versions of this story of courage, redemption and eventual victory, but I would re recommend the 2002 version starring Jim Caviezel and Guy Pearce. Finally, the wonderful Girl Interrupted, dark as night and very disturbing. OK, let's move on to our next review. Now, all through this podcast, we've had a running joke about the film Lucky, which is the film we were meant to review. Unfortunately, things didn't work out as planned. And Graham, I will hand over to you for comment on oh, this. Oh, yeah, thanks for that, Jeff. And I cocked up the time of the movie and had to treat the team to dinner for my sins. And if that was not bad enough, I had to watch a rom-com as the replacement <laughs> movie. That was a lot harder to swallow than the excellent Korean noodles and bao I treated you guys to. It was very good. Yes. <laughs> it was very good. Never mind, Graham, we all make mistakes. Take Neil. He believes one day he'll be able to hold a golf club in the right way. <laughs> so our film for our final review changed from Lucky to Crazy Rich Asians. Now, in that film, Rachel Chow, played by Constance Wu, is a talented economics professor in New York. She is happy both in her work and love life. She's in a long-term relationship 
with fellow academic Nick Young, played by Henry Golding. Everything seems to be perfect, and then one day Nick announces he's taking Rachel to his home in Singapore for his best friend's wedding. Rachel soon learns that Nick is in fact part of one of the wealthiest families in Singapore, rich beyond her imagining. Many in Nick's crazy rich family are enamoured with Rachel, but not Nick's mother Eleanor, played by Michelle Yeoh. She believes poor, American-cultured Rachel is not the right woman for Nick. Will matriarch Eleanor stop the relationship, or will love win out? Neil, did this romantic comedy warm your heart? I liked it. I engaged with the film, and the third act worked. Crazy Rich Asians is not really meant for my demographic. Well, duh. So <laughs> no, I well, viewed we this... weren't meant to review it anyway, were we, Neil? <laughs> no, that's true. So I viewed this film as such. It's the standard rom-com. Rich boy, poor girl, etc. But it has subtle depth. Guys, your thoughts? I liked it. It has verve and energy to spare. The director, after years of poor movies, has finally hit one out of the park. By the way, Neil, that title, Crazy Rich Asians, good to see you link it to one of those words. I'm not rich. <laughs> That's such a cheap joke. OK, I liked it despite rom-cons not really my thing. I find the genre very predictable in Boy Meets Girl, Boiler's Girl, Boyfriend's Girl again, uh, the classic three-act Cinderella movie. Uh, However, uh, sorry, Graham, would that then be along the lines of Boy Goes to See Movie? Gets the movie, finds it's not on. Boy goes to see another movie. <laughs> we had lunch out of him, Jeff. Oh, we Goodness did. Sorry, sake. Yeah. Right, now that's it. Next time we go to, to Bristol, you're buying dinner, mate. <laughs> OK. I tell you. However, the performances were excellent, mainly from the two leading ladies, Wu and the ever-excellent Michelle Yeoh, which lifted the movie well above the ordinary. Michelle Yeoh is a fantastic as Eleanor. The fierce mother-in-law not to be if she can help it. The two leads were believable and the comic terms from Aquafina and Nico Santos, the rainbow sheep of the family, were both very funny. Yeah. I agree with you, Neil. The main leads of Constant Wu and Henry Goulding are charming. And Michelle Yeoh gives a three-dimensional performance in what in many films could just be seen as a standard villainous mm. role. The supporting cast you mentioned are excellent. The only difference I would say is that I thought Ken Yong and his family were hysterically funny. <laughs> well, I can't they? believe you will have much different to say on this, Graham. Um, well, no, as I said in, in the introduction, the acting was excellent. Cinderella and Prince Charming were interesting and believable, and Yo as the wicked stepmother was great. I also thought the comedy sidekicks were also excellent, as you guys have said. Her friend, played by Aquafina and the gay family fixer Oliver, played by Nico Santos, had the best lines in the movie. Oh, and Jimmy O. Yang, one of my favourite actors on HBO Silicon Valley, appeared as Bernard, the stupid friend everyone has to put up with. <laughs> the rest of the cast were, however, a little one-dimensional for me. Yo's posse of Bible-reading friends, the ex-girlfriend, and in particular the sister Astrid, or, which was a pity, really, because I thought the actress Gemma Chan was good but had very little to work with in this movie. Maybe next year when we get to see her as Dr. Minerva in the Captain Marvel right, movie. Right, stop, stop right there. <laughs> this is a superhero-free zone this month, OK? <laughs> you know, Neil, over to you. No, Bring us back. I'm, I'm sorry, once Mel Gibson sneaked out of the bag, <laughs> yeah, all bets are off. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Apart from the cameos, Ken Yong, for example, the rest of the cast were deliberately underplayed, which worked well. They were all one-dimensional for a reason. Mm. 
The director, John Chu, better known as the disappointing sequel director, kept the story moving. Jeff was a lot more impressed with the director than I was. I did not know that he had previously directed a load of terrible movies. I thought what he did on this movie was good, solid work. Mind you, he had an excellent script to work with. I'll keep an eye out for John M. Chu in the future. Indeed, the visual flair John Chu showed in Now You See Me 2 paid off in spades here. Now, if you haven't seen Now You See Me, that car joke reference of spades will come out there. God I'm sorry to have to spell you, out that joke. If you have uh, to explain it, yeah, Jeff. I yeah, I know. It's it not a joke. Work. No. Okay. Anyway, he's confident and assured as he changes styles as the story progresses. The first 20 minutes, reminiscent of a Doris Day Rock Hudson comedy, is nothing short of brilliant. I will definitely be keeping an eye out for him in future. And I've almost, but not quite, forgiven him for G.I. Joe retribution. <laughs> Yikes. I like the move from New York to Singapore. They managed an unbelievable richness to Singapore that really helped to get an idea of the wealth and scale of the houses. Vanya Schoenjel managed to capture the most dis- almost disgusting richness available to the super wealthy. Absolutely agree, Neil. That gaudiness really comes through in Mr. Sunjul's cinematography. He's known more for his TV work, but on the strength of this, I hope he transitions to movies more often. Yeah, I love the cinematography. The opening 20 minutes was shot in a very 1960s style, reminiscent of the rom-com of those days. Then we move to Singapore, and the colours just get so much more saturated and lush. Excellent stuff. As Jeff noticed, a lot of the wipes and transitions were also reminiscent of the 60s era. The screenplay and themes, standard rom-com territory, the Mm. things that set it apart to the subtleties. Eleanor is fearsome, but the grandmother raised her children because she didn't think Eleanor was capable of raising them, as she too came from a poorer family. The Mahjong game is an awesome analogy and sums up the issues. Rachel marries Nick and Eleanor resents her. She doesn't marry him and Nick resents her. Both have to win the game, but there's now doubt in Eleanor's mind. I kept trying to remember how to play Mahjong, but Michelle Yeoh's facial expressions was all I needed to know as to how it was going and throwing away the most valuable tile to give Eleanor hope, then showing the winning hand. Brilliant. Yeah, I I find the central theme of this movie interesting. The trope of poor girl, rich boy is not new. We already have a number of classics like Love Story... Or you could throw in the fact that she's a poor girl hooker and we have pretty woman. Or if you want a true classic, My Fair Lady. So the trope is not new. Oh, and how could I forget Selena Kyle and Bruce Wayne's In the Dark Knight Rises? Hmm. This movie, however, is interesting in what it says about the rise of Asia. I I thought the three central themes of the excesses of the Asian nouveau riche the role of the family and tradition and the wronged woman were very interesting. As the boy meets girl stuff was not really for me, this is the main source of enjoyment I had in this movie. I also liked the reverse racism which was dealt with in the very first scene in London with a typical British racist having his arse kicked by Michelle Hmm. Yeoh. Ironic and satisfying. I also liked that all of the crass and material greed came from the West and all the beauty and history came from Chinese culture. The family making dumplings together and viewing the night-blooming flowers, all very traditional and respectful. The wronged woman was also a central theme of this movie and I, and I just liked that. 
the movie is also stuffed with little references to Asian culture. I, like Neil, like the Mahjong scene at the end with Eleanor as the dealer sat in the East representing hmm. traditional Chinese values and poor Rachel sat in the West. Throwing away the eight bamboo was also a lovely symbolic touch as she had a winning hand and she threw away her most valuable tile. Just great. Uh, I saw Less Pretty Woman, More Pretty in Pink. Oh, yeah, good. Okay, one I'll give you the, that one. Yeah, one of the main underlying themes of John Hughes's movies is that always that conflict between rich and poor. Indeed, the character played by Aquafina could almost be a female version of John Cryer from that earlier Hughes movie. That theme from the Hughes film of First Love lifts and drops into this film beautifully. Now, let's also talk about what you mentioned on culture. I think that's even more interesting. Mm. We have this family who cling to a false tradition of the old ways. You talk about dumplings. Mm. And yet they fully embrace a new westernized culture. This is why the prologue, to me, is so important. It shows the beginning of that transition, which is fully realized 20 years later. The music, the extreme parties... And the bizarre, almost tacky wedding. Mm. This is quite clever and I think will reward more on repeated viewings. We have some differences from our listener community this month. First up, our new show contributor Lucy says, If this is the future of rom-com, consider me converted. I was so impressed by the overall film and would recommend it to anyone. It's such a smart, funny, heartbreaking film. Phil Foster also impressed by the movie. All the actors are impressive and brimming with positivity. The scenes are put together with confidence and feature fantastic locales. The standout story for me in the film is that of Nick's sister Astrid, played by Gemma Chan. Only Declan has a slightly different take. I think the film has been overhyped. It was a reasonable rom-com that improved as the film progressed. I didn't like the lead couple and it felt like a Singapore tourism advert. Final thoughts, gentlemen. Uh, it was surprisingly good. I thought this could be Mamma Mia too, but it turned out to be really interesting. Before I sum up, let's quickly mention the music. Mm. Brian Tyler, who I have seen in concert, guys, and is brilliant. <laughs> Best known for his action scores in the Fast and Furious films and The Mummy... Here provides a breezy and energetic music score. In fact, I will go so far as to say it's one of his best and look forward to him working with this director again. So as for the film, really enjoyable, wonderful performances throughout with a freshness about the film that was never really sold by that awful trailer. A warning though, do not see this film Mm. if you are hungry. There are some scenes of street food porn that are to die for. (laughs) Yes. After saying that, over to you, Neil. Thank you. I love the subtleties. There's a subplot of Sister Astrid. Uh, No matter how rich you are, you can't buy happiness. The would-be Nick's friends and family are vapid and one-dimensional, born into richness, incapable of thinking beyond themselves. I love the subtle similarities. The main children work hard and know the value of contributing. The mothers are strong characters. Both the fathers are absent. All the children were educated in the West. There are moments in the film when you're allowed to glimpse into Rachel's potential future. Her husband will be absent. Michelle Yeoh's character will always be there and interfering. The grandmother even more so. Astrid's husband showed what happens when you're kept. I can understand its popularity among millennials. It's a rom-com for their generation. 
Arthur was for me. Gone with the wind was for Jeff. <laughs> it's also not as funny as Arthur. What is? But I can understand its popularity among the... Oh, what are they called? Oh, yeah, young people. Or oh, people who understand culture. And let's be honest, Neil. Arthur, the overrated film that you're oh. talking about, makes the Happy Time Murders seem like a comedy classic. Oh, it shows you just you just don't understand it. It's Gone with the Wind was your... Uh, yeah, it's not a comedy, Neil. Uh, it, it doesn't matter, it's still rom. Okay, um, what's to watch? Any rom-com where a rich boy meets a poor girl. I'm really not that good on rom-coms. <laughs> oh, how about John Hughes films from the 80s? Breakfast Club, Pretty in Pink, Some Kind of Wonderful. Apart from them, The Graduate and the original Arthur, of course, because it's funny. <laughs> Oh, here's a surprise. Another interview I wasn't part of. After our review of what is current and past, it's welcome back to Steve. He was recently interviewed by Jeff and Graham about some films coming up in the run-up to both Halloween and Christmas. Christmas? That's months ago before that. Over to you, Jeff. At the Flicks, in with Cine World Manager Steve Wright. Hi, Steve, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Well, Steve, after an incredibly successful summer, it looks like there's going to be no let-up as we head into autumn, so I think we need to get straight into the film action. What do you think? It's been a very busy summer, as you've said. Even with the glorious weather we've had, people haven't stayed away from the cinema, which Ah. is really good to see. Checking my list, I see such films on there as Venom, Venom, 5th of October, official release for that, but uh, we are opening on Wednesday the 3rd of October oh, in excellent. IMAX, so really looking forward to that. Big hype around it, I think. Absolutely. Uh, Tom Hardy's looking fantastic in the title role. Everything I see, every new trailer that comes out, I get more and more excited, so definitely um, one to look out for. One I'm particularly looking forward to, and it opened in Venice Film Festival recently, to incredible buzz, is First Man. Yes, uh, again, uh, happy to announce it's another one we're getting. So uh, that one's going into IMAX as well, which oh, is so, really yeah. good. As you say, it's had some really sort of early reviews yeah. are looking fantastic for that one, uh, and that's out 12th of October. A Star is Born also coming, Bradley Cooper? That one is not... 100% confirmed yet. And Lady Gaga starring alongside him as well. Yeah, not my cup of tea personally, <laughs> but uh, I'm sure there are fans out there yeah. that will want to come and, and see her acting debut, as it were, on the big screen. Also coming, I see we've got Johnny English Strikes Again. Yes, this one's getting real hype at the cinema. We put the posters up a couple of weeks ago and people are commenting left, right and centre. When's it coming out? We can't wait. We love the first ones. Really looking forward to it. A couple of smaller children that are getting really excited and pointing to the posters and saying, look, Mum, Mr Bean. It's not too far removed from Mr Bean. It's not really. It's just he talks. So, yeah, it looks like a real feel-good, fun film. Doesn't take itself too seriously. No, that's right. And it's got a local connection, so I believe some of it was filmed at Barclay Castle. I was not aware of that. Yeah, yeah, they they did. uh, About this time last year they were filming it. And the one I'm looking forward to the most, and the other two, Neil and Graham aren't, is Halloween. Glad it's the next one on my list. Halloween, uh, for me, uh, I think I'm with the other guys. I'm not the no. biggest fan of horror films anyway. It looks very good. Yes. I'm still not going to go and watch it. But, <laughs> uh, no, no, Graham, you're not, are you, Graham? No, absolutely not. No, no, no. So I'm sure we'll have plenty of horror fans out yeah. there that will come and see that one. And that's released 19th of October, so just before Halloween. Yeah. Halloween, just before Halloween. And alongside that, for the younger horror fans, we have uh, Goosebumps 2 as well. So oh, the, excellent. Based on the uh, 
the popular books. What else have you got on your list? Then, so the big one for us, and certainly the one I'm most looking forward to, as a massive, massive fan of Queen and Freddie Mercury. Oh, oh yeah. Bohemian Rhapsody, 26th of October for that one. Um, we are previewing it on the 24th and 25th as well. We are looking ourselves to do some kind of big event around it, maybe oh, get in some tribute bands. Certainly going to be playing a lot of Queen and Freddie's music into our foyer area. Plenty of things in the pipeline for that that we're just finalising the last yeah. few points. I, I think... They certainly bounced back as the the director left part of the way through and was replaced by Dexter Fletcher. Yes. Who did Eddie the Eagle. So I think it's going to give it that sort of vibe which will make it more accessible. Mm -hmm. And seeing the trailer, I think he's got the voice perfect. Yeah, he really has. Then coming up, 9th of November, we've got another film that seems to have been done a thousand times, The Grinch. Again, it looks quite fun it looks like they've taken a slightly different spin on it taking it more back to how the animation within the books was away from the sort of Jim Carrey live version I think the kids are going to love it it's sort of that early November slot and it'll probably run all the way up till Christmas we would have thought never mind about the kids Steve I'm looking forward to that one I think the Grinch is fantastic they did um, back in the 60s they did an animated version of it for TV with Boris Karloff doing the voice. So Benedict Cumberpatch, uh, uh, I think, take, with his take on this, yeah. is, is tremendous. It is one of my ones. I, I really think I just to. about remember... I think it was featured in Home Alone, actually. The yes, it was. It was. Animated. That's right. yeah. And that's kind of where yeah. I first got a glimpse of it and then went back and watched it, and actually it was very good. Yeah. I think, for me, the, the two sort of big Christmas films are going to be between The Grinch and Wreck-It Ralph 2, which comes out on the 30th of November. Yeah, the trailer is great with that. Um, when she's in with the Disney princesses, yes. I think looks looks really good. You know, that feeds into a December lineup you've got that's just out of this world this year. It is absolutely insane. There's another one in November, which will certainly run into probably January, February next year. Fantastic Beasts, Crimes yes. of Grindelwald. Harry Potter is an absolute juggernaut and the bane of every cinema worker in the world because we know how busy it's going to get. Then we have 14th of December. There's three big films, uh, in my opinion, that will be coming out then. So we've got Aquaman, which will keep all of the uh, superhero fans happy and those that are maybe more DC than Marvel. We have Mortal Engines. That's that's the one for us. Well... Us too. Neil is going to be with the one, the next one that you say. And then Mary Poppins returns. That's the one, yeah. That's going to be the big one. We know it's going to do well in Cheltenham. Emily Blunt looks fantastic. It, again, it always concerns me when they recast roles, but she looks fantastic. She plays yeah. it very well. The few short clips that I've had the uh, opportunity to see it does look very good unfinished work but it looks fantastic and i know they've released the teaser trailer not too long ago which uh, looks very good as well really does make it look quite exciting and that is pretty much the big christmas lineup for us Uh, we're expecting those to run and run so the big live cinema over the christmas period we've got christmas carol starring Simon Callow. That could be very interesting. It certainly will be. I didn't know about that one. Uh, yeah, so that's a, a live one. That's on the 11th of December, 7 o'clock for that one. Then we have 
the big one over Christmas that always does very well, Bolshoi Ballet's version of the Nutcracker. And that one is on the Sunday the 23rd of December, so just before Christmas. There are a couple of other live events sort of dropped in around the really, really strong December yeah. slate that we and, have. And there's some big live events coming up. Have you got King Lear coming up, haven't you, in There are October? a lot. Uh, uh, Neil, who's not here today, you'll notice him because he'll have his Cliff Richard T-shirt on. <laughs> he's he's, he's ready for that, for that he's one. He's ready for it. He's got his ticket. Good. He's all set to go. Excellent. At the moment, it's not 100% confirmed, but it looks like we're also going to have The King and I live from the London Palladium wow. on the 29th of November. So there's some really good live Absolutely. content as well. Important question that has been fed back to us that I've got to ask you, Steve, from some of our listeners. Yes. Mm-hmm. How's the money being raised for your children in need tattoo? At the moment, <laughs> <laughs> the, the staff are absolutely lynching me with it. Uh, I'm up to just over £100 for, for that. That there is a cap on it, which is £250 for me to even attempt it because some of the ideas they're coming up with are insane. I have, however, stupidly, as if I couldn't get any more stupid, I've agreed with our staff that they can come up with a list of almost dares, challenges for me, and I will put a price to that challenge. Okay. The only strict rules that I've said, I will not shave off my beard and I will not shave my head. Other than that, I'm fair game. So they're currently devising and plotting against me to come up with a big Didn't long Did Rob list. say he'd shave his head? Rob did say he would shave his head. It's what's affectionately become known as Project Giamatti in the actual, <laughs> uh, actual cinema because when he has his head shaved he will look a lot like Paul Giamatti brilliant uh, he's doing very well with that actually uh, again if it hits £250 it's happening we're up to just over £150 I believe raised for getting his head shaved talking of children in need as a as a cinema we're doing fantastically well target is £3,500 between now and the actual day of children in need we are just a fraction shy of £2,000 already we genuinely believe that we're going to surpass our target of 3500 because we haven't really even got going with the full swing of everything um but there's going to be disney princess days coming up that was another one i was asked because again i've been asked about because we spoke last time about the disney princesses day yeah that was coming so that's going to be part of children in need it is it's all going to tie in with movies for juniors so the the saturday sunday morning kids films so we're going to try and get the actual disney princesses in real life here and kids to have a photo opportunity and just donate whatever they can to children need yeah that's happening we're just uh finalizing dates and again once we have them we'll post those out on our facebook page to let everyone know to come down and see their favorite princess excellent it sounds like you're you're really really busy certainly in the well we talk about autumn we're going up to christmas year as well uh, is there anything else that's that's coming? Have you got time for anything else? <laughs> I don't think we honestly do have time for anything else at the moment. So the big focus over October, November time is naturally going to be children in need for us and raising as much money yeah. as we can from them. So we have, again, a growing uh, listenership in the area and our downloads are definitely increasing, which is good. Any special message for the the local people listening to this? Just thank you you know we expected the summer to be a lot quieter than it was with the very good weather that we had they've still you know come in to see us appreciate our our loyal customers and you know to everyone that's listening a bit further afield you know really happy that you're enjoying the the content these guys are putting out which is fantastic and we're really happy to be involved with that 
Okay, that's it from us for this time. Steve, always a pleasure, and we will see you before Christmas. Absolutely, speak to you then. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Cheers. There's a few on that list I will be watching, although I'm not happy with the comments are made about me. Truth be told, I thought about getting tickets for all of us to that event, but Jeff's already going to a Barry Manilow concert in London. <laughs> Except he's not there, but carry on. OK, guys, what else have you been watching? Cue the music. This month I have a few movies and three things I've been watching on TV. No comics this month, as I've just started reading Salvation, a 600-page novel by one of my favourite sci-fi authors, Peter F. Hamilton. Right, movies. Things I enjoyed this month are Wild on DVD featuring Reese Witherspoon. Excellent movie about dealing with grief and the redemptive qualities of a good long walk. Thanks, Jeff, for that recommendation. Excellent stuff. Searching by Anish Chiganti and starring John Cho, a thriller that unfolds entirely on computer screens. Brilliant, different thriller with enough plot twists and misdirection to keep you entertained. Next, American Animals, about three idiots and a fantasist who attempt to rob a rare book collection in Lexington, Kentucky in 2004. Well-told story with a good cast and remarkably based on a true story. And finally for movies, the masterpiece that is Maudie. An absolute gem of a movie. We often talk about movies being layered, and this applies to this movie in spades. A base layer of a wonderful story about the life of a folk artist, Maud Lewis, who paints in Nova Scotia in the 50s and 60s. Then on top of that is the cinematography layer that is so good, the real world looks unreal by comparison. Next, the music is inspired, just guitar, piano and voice. Then there's the layer that is probably a career best performance from Ethan Hawke. And finally, the real icing on this particular layer cake belongs to Sally Hawkins, who is heart achingly perfect. Not good, not great, but perfect. Heart meltingly perfect. Now back to TV. Three things are keeping me interested on TV. Krypton in, on E4 in the UK. Very slow start. But we're getting more into the meat of the story now. And I had a real uh, moment at the end of episode 5. Which is really, really good. Complete twist. Hadn't seen that coming at all. Uh, this is something new and interesting from DC. How refreshing. Hoping for more good things from when... Aquaman drops later this year. Uh, Iron Fist Season 2 on Netflix I've also been watching. Much better story this time around. Much better fights and the story has been beefed up. And finally the BBC's excellent drama Killing Eve. Thanks Neil for this recommendation. Really enjoying it. Very dark and surprisingly funny. Well worth a watch. Okay, thanks Graham. For me as always cinema, TV and radio. For cinema, Morty. I have to agree totally with Graham on this. If Morty doesn't make my top 10 films at the end of the year, I will be surprised. Both Sally Hawkins and Ethan Hawke give career best performances on a film which appears simple. However, as you peel back the layers, it is anything but. Um, Jeff, did we both go in with just thinking, oh, this is going to be okay, and then we're just like, totally blown away absolutely Stroud Film Society knocked it out of the park with this selection again I, I must admit being on the committee I was a bit <laughs> concerned about this choice 
but it was brilliant. Um, sorry for the beeping. Uh, okay, moving on. Just editing you. Just editing. Uh, the Nun. Okay, oh. let's go from one extreme to the other. One of the worst films of the year. I've enjoyed the Conjuring films, however, these spin-off movies are simply shocking. The Nun is really a Hammer Dracula film in disguise, and no amount of good location work and incredible sets can hide the fact that it's a non-scripted piece of bollocks. Avoid. Well, that's a shame, because Neil and I were going to go and see it. Oh, well, no. Jeff... Actually, you, you could no. go and see it, because it will do nothing to you. No, it may don't. convince you to watch other horror movies. No, you've ruined it for me. No, oh, well, no, no. You, this is, you know, even Lucy hasn't seen it. <laughs> Final score. Dave Batista cannot help you in this ridiculous diehard in West Ham football stadium <laughs> movie. Pierce Brosnan turns up for a couple of minutes to pick up his paycheck... And some of the football stadium destruction sequences were very good. They did it for real, by the way. They did destroy it. Other than that, all I can say about it are two things. One, it's better than a nun. And two, Neil, it's not a bloody sports movie. <laughs> OK, for TV, Beware the Slender Man on Sky Atlantic. Oh, good grief. Now, I haven't watched much TV at the moment. Uh, so I did take this opportunity to catch up with this startling documentary presumably being shown again because of the recent Slenderman film. In that regard, it raises interesting questions. Two teenage girls, Morgan Geyser and Anissa Weir, are now both serving very long prison sentences for the attempted murder of classmate Peyton Laudner. So should we have a film about a fictional character which these girls thought so real they tried to sacrifice another to it? I'm not going to answer that question. You need to catch up with this film and decide for yourself. All I'll say is, is it's a sobering watch. And all you can say of the recent film is that it was so rubbish, it'll quickly be forgotten, whereas I don't think this documentary will. For radio, the making of 2001. I love these little documentary gems occasionally thrown out on radio. In this one, Sir Christopher Fraylin talks about the classic sci-fi film now 50 years old, the same age as me. <laughs> and yet you saw it when it came out. Hmm. I was an attentive baby. <laughs> Full of little gems, the informative clips from past interviews with Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick, the first plans to film 2001 at exotic locations around the world, the original idea to show weapons through the ages before that famous jump cut. My favourite of all, Christopher Fraylin, having a joint pass to everyone in his local cinema when the journey through the Stargate started. <laughs> well with tracking down the show, that is, not the joint. Neil, can you pass that over, please? <laughs> Actually, it's it's on iPlayer, if you if you search for... What, the joint? No, not the joint. <laughs> the making of 2001 on okay. iPlayer oh, cool. Radio. So it's still there. This month I've been binge-watching TV programmes. For a start, I tried to watch Gotham. My God's sake, the story's ridiculous. But it's it is superhero, somewhat, Neil. What somehow, do you expect? Somehow I seem to keep watching it. But they keep introducing characters. They just introduced Poison Ivy for no apparent reason. It's just a shame they didn't use proper actors. That's all I can say. <laughs> well, is that when she's a little girl? Yes. Yeah, well, yes. just you you haven't seen anything yet. Wait for the scene where she ages 20 years oh. in one scene. Yeah. Oh, wow. Like well, weird. it really is that bad. Weird. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it's crap. Um, secondly, Mossad 101, season one. 
really enjoyed it in Hebrew with subtitles on Netflix. <laughs> a disgrace. Yeah, that I is know. so you. It's a, in you know, it's Hebrew only, it's on only, Netflix. It's only because I'm slightly <laughs> deaf and because if I have to turn it up so loud, the neighbours, people in different different towns complain. So basically, I'm used to watching things on subtitles, so I might as well watch my sub 101. Oh. It'll also introduce us to a whole load of new listeners. All I can say is, Neil, it's a good job you don't live next door to Jeremy Corbyn. He wouldn't be happy hearing that Hebrew. <laughs> <laughs> so an, a, a disgraced agent is brought back to HQ to run the next training programme because they're disappointed with the recent graduates. He sets up a sink or swim programme, assuming any of them live long enough. <laughs> On Amazon, Jack Ryan, season one, excellent and gets better and better. Plenty of twists and John Krasinski is well suited to the role. Then bring up the trio of spy series, Killing Eve, from the wonderful Phoebe Waller-Bridge on BBC. There were a lot of good press about this series and it delivers. Sandra O oh from Grey's Anatomy as Eve Palestri and largely unknown Liverpudlian Jodie Comer as Villanelle. Eve is an analyst turned field agent, similar to Jack Ryan, and Villanelle is a serial killer unlike any other. Oh, she is bonkers. Yeah. She is Eve, bonkers. Yeah, Eve, middle-aged and not used to actual field work, must catch her, though I'm not sure I want her to be caught. Villanelle is a fantastic character, behaves like a brat teenager who delights in killing people inventively. The effect is almost mesmerising. But this one has asthma. You know how I like the breathy ones. <laughs> Two very strong female characters, and it's very good. A dark, dark comedy. As for next month, Neil will be reviewing Bad Times at El Royale. Jeff will be reviewing Halloween. And I can't wait to share this experience <laughs> with you guys. And Graham will be reviewing First Man. Ooh. Now, let's, before we go, because we are rushing to the end here, I know you listeners have been waiting for this. It's the quiz, and it's a winner this month. It's like trying to reason with Deadpool. Yeah, and with the same humour. Well, Neil, prepare to be impressed. Just one question this month. What famous role do these actors all share in common? Are you ready for this? Yeah. There's Peter Cushing, mm -hmm. Roger Moore, Christopher Plummer, and Peter Cook. Good luck. Answers next time. So, gentlemen, I can safely announce that it's a wrap and another At The Flicks is in the can, so it only remains for us to say... I'm off to get my Halloween decorations ready... Neil, can I have that mask back, please? <laughs> no, and I'm going on a golf break and then we'll be avoiding Halloween. And I'm off to watch one of my personal heroes use World War II technology to travel to the moon to fulfil the dreams of a dead president. Richard Nixon. Oh, no. <laughs> the other one. And to everyone else, thanks, thanks for, for listening, listening and, and goodbye. goodbye.